Hey everybody, welcome to Row Hunting Resources Podcast. All right, so uh, this is episode 30, which is maybe you can consider this the quote-unquote part two of episode 29. So like I said, in episode 29, I gave some updates and talked about some opportunities that folks wanted to come out this year for turkey hunting and then spent enough time on that one that I just didn't have enough time to dive into a couple of the core core topics that I wanted to. So I just tabled those and my intent was originally to turn right around and record and then release that through for the week you know like a double uh, podcast edition for the week of what March 1st ish Um, I don't think I I think what we're going to do is well I'm guessing you guys are going to be listening to this on Monday uh, because the topic the, the guest that I had lined up for like yesterday or today, I'm recording this on Wednesday the 2nd. Um, We had to postpone that discussion yet again, number one. And number two, um, as always, not always, and not as always, I should say, but as is oft to do, I, uh, I released episode 29, kicked that baby off on Monday. It went, and I was about ready to go into the studio to record this, episode 30, when I checked social media, checked Instagram, and on Instagram, I see a post that just absolutely launched me into the stratosphere of angst. Um, and the funny part, now it's not, I don't even know if it's, the ironic part about that is it literally dovetailed right smack into what I originally wanted to talk about for the episode, but I literally tripped up and fell face first into the exact same thing that I wanted to warn you guys about and talk about, which is the 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 trap of allowing your emotions to get the better of you when you're dealing with sportsman issues, wildlife issues, especially when we're dealing with wildlife issues that we are either responding to or reacting to or scrambling to uh, address something that maybe animal activists are doing, anti-hunters are doing on the landscape, trying to you know diminish more uh, hunting opportunity, hunting or trapping opportunities for us. And so, again, this is going to be a common theme here just simply because there's so much stuff getting thrown uh basically what I've said before is, you know, the animal activists are just throwing everything they can at the wall to just see what sticks. Um, they just uh, right now for a variety of reasons, which I've talked about before they're in pan. I think they are, it's not panic mode, but it's in frantic mode because I think they know that they're going to lose some sympathetic ears in Congress, in state legislatures, in governorships. Um, and, if and for governorships by default, uh, some wildlife commissions, and so I think they're just scrambling to see whatever what just just a mad flurry of activism on their behalf right now, just to try to move the needle a little bit while they still can, while they have time to to do it. And so you see a lot of uh, sportsman advocacy these days just ramping up, which is a good thing, kind of. And the guest I'm, we're scheduling this now, hopefully for next week. Um, that's going to be tricky because I am, in fact, headed to Colorado. Uh, I think tomorrow, if at the latest, 
it's I, I've got to leave tomorrow. I just let's put it that way. I've got to leave tomorrow, and I'll be there for about a week to ten days. So I'm going to try to record that discussion probably while I'm sitting in the hotel. I, I think that's what it's going to end up being is is just another hotel edition. Hopefully the hotel I'm headed to uh, it's a nice hotel in. Uh, Loveland and I, I mean nice enough it's not a high end hotel it's just a nice enough hotel hopefully it's got some good Wi-Fi to it to where I can actually function and, and record some stuff but regardless um, yeah that discussion is going to be talking about how we how it's going to be talking about the most effective ways of sportsman advocacy on the on the landscape and it's, it's not going to be fun for a few people. It's going to piss some people off. It's not meant to piss people off. It's not meant to, it, this discussion is not going to be meant to piss people off and it's not going to be meant to discourage people. In fact, we want to encourage people to, to engage in sportsman advocacy, but hopefully we can do it in a, in a manner and, and shed some light on what is effective and what is not effective to where when you do get involved, you can do so in an effective manner. But that's going to be a comprehensive discussion, hence the reason why I want to have a guest on. I'm going to pull my watch off. It's warm. Jeez, Pete, it's beautiful. It's a gorgeous day out. It's like mid-70s right now. No wind, sunny, just gorgeous out there. I wish we had some moisture, but hopefully this uh, upcoming week we'll get a little bit of moisture out here. But regardless, which means I've had my, because it was cold, I have my heater in the studio here cranked and I'm just roasting. I don't know if this long sleeve shirt is going to make it through the whole thing or not. But regardless, anyway, I digress. Um, so anyway. For this discussion, I wanted to talk about the dangers of, of, of letting yourself, a variety of, a, a variety of us getting tripped up in our emotions. And again, like I said, ironically, and when I'm talking to you about these things, I'm not, I'm, I, I hope you understand I'm not coming at you and I'm, and I'm, I'm, I don't want to be lecturing you. Sometimes it's going to be, I'm going to be, I am obviously going to be passionate about some things and I am very opinionated about certain things. I will try to back up my opinions. And if my opinions are not something I can back up, it's just a, simply a belief. I'm going to hopefully clarify that for you. However, I am passionate. Um, I do get elevated. I get fired up and I'm going to express that. But when I do that, I don't want you to ever consider it to be I'm talking down to you or I'm I'm above you or I'm better than you or I'm I, you know that's that's not the intent. Um, if if I try to point you in a better direction or I try to clarify some things for you, I hope you always remember it's it's from an educational standpoint in that I just want you to be better. That's the entire thing that Row Hunting Resources has always been about, especially the Elk Hunting Institute, the Elk Module, when we started that, what, 2010, 2011? Jeez, oh, Pete. All the way back, everything that I've always wanted, Just I just want people to be better. I want to help people to be better as they function on the landscape, with whether it's your hunting or whether, in this case, we're talking about political advocacy for sportsmen's issues or, or, or whatever political advocacy that you want to get into. All right. So it was, it was ironic that here I am again, and, and this is why I'm saying this. I trip, I, I'm vulnerable to this stuff as well. And quite honestly, I will raise my hand and say, I'm guilty probably of initial reactions that are emotionally, you know, 
triggering or emotionally driven and I've got to just vent with myself, you know, vent, you know, on paper or whatever. And then I can take a moment, process, get through all those things that are going through my head and then take a step back and be like, all right, what is actually the issue? What is actually going on here? And then move forward, either just let things go or address them in a more constructive manner. I did not do that on Monday to a certain extent. Again, I am guilty of this just like you guys are. And um, I'm just trying to always do better. And I hope this discussion will help you be better as well. So for this conversation, I'm going to tackle four different things. One, me personally and how I failed on Monday and I got emotional about a situation. I'm going to talk about some of our large-scale sportsmen's organizations and conservation organizations that trip themselves up into these emotionally driven, whether it's social media posts, whether it's uh, uh, calls to action, if you will, or sometimes it's literally their tactic uh, that it's their entire business model to whip up emotion to get you to subscribe, to get you to move, to mobilize on an emotional issue that they've cherry-picked for you, to move you in a direction that they want you to move into. So we've got myself, sportsmen's organizations, and um, maybe sportsmen's or, or conservation organizations, okay? The third one is going to be just individuals. Some of us as individual sportsmen see something happening on the landscape and we just get whipped up into emotion and we just want to lash out. <coughs> and then the, the last one is going to be wildlife professionals, wildlife bio, professional wildlife biologists, wildlife managers, resource managers, whether you're agency personnel or whether you're retired or whether you're conservation organization uh, folks now that you're working with, whatever. We're talking about wildlife professionals that also allow their emotions to get the better of them and not, not see objectively, and certainly in many cases, I would argue, maybe not behave objectively, especially those people that are trained in the science of wildlife and ecology and, and wildlife management. You, you're, those are the, the people that are supposed to be objective, analytical, all right? They're supposed to be, quote unquote, falling on the science. As well, if we're talking about resource professionals that are involved with agencies following the quote-unquote science, for who? The people of the state from which they are, or in which they are uh, executing their official capacity, their jobs, all right? In the context as well, of the broader policy and the broader objectives of the agency that they're working for. Okay. So that, those are the four different where myself, I'm going to throw myself under the bus. So you can see that I'm not, I am not immune to this. We're going to talk about organizations. We're going to talk about just individual hunters and we're going to put, talk about resource professionals. And I've got four different examples of how we can get ourselves wrapped around an axle and actually not be positively moving the needle in our favorable direction. We're actually shooting ourselves in the foot. All right. So that is literally the, the focus of this conversation. That's why I named it what, what I did. You know, it's, it's, it's basically fire, aim, ready. All right. Just, it's, it's a, it's a react and then, 
and, and then once we've reacted, once once we fired off our reaction, once we've then figured out what we want to where we want it, we, we fire first, then figure out where we wanted to to fire, and then and then and then we've kind of wrap our heads around what the hell's going on and get ready about it. We've got it completely bass backwards. When we're emotional, oftentimes we get it completely bass backwards. All right, and that and that's there we go. So with that, let's just jump jump in. All right. Uh, again, this was uh, this was going to be released uh, this week, midweek, but I think, again, I think most of you are going to be listening to this or watching this um, on Monday. Oh, real quick, a brief update. The podcast is on Spotify now. Uh, you should be able to find all the podcasts on Spotify. Again, everything I do, I'm going to try to always couch it under row hunting resources. So when you go to Spotify, you type in row hunting resources, beca- excuse me, because it is new. Because it has doesn't have a lot of, of listens as of yet, because it literally just got on there like a day or two ago. It finally, well, I put it up there. I got it on two days ago, but it finally uploaded and got all the the. Um, uh, it synced all the other podcasts up there. I think yesterday, so there's not a lot of, of listens on it. You're gonna probably when you go to if you want to find it on Spotify, you're you're gonna need to go to the search bar or the search little yeah search bar. And then you're going to have to type in row hunting resources. It does not pop up until you're almost ready to hit the S, the last S on resources or the, the ending S on resources. All right. Just typing in Chris Rowe is going to bring up the podcast I've done with either Kafaru Cast or J. Scott Outdoors uh, a lot of times. So uh, just understand that you're going to have to type the whole thing out because I just don't have that much viewership on there as of yet. And remember, it's R-O-E hunting resources okay so with that being said please if you follow spot uh if you follow your podcast primarily on spotify please follow it and if you would if you like these kind of discussions you find them valuable it, uh, you hear this all the time it becomes this cliche of please hit the like and subscribe and all the all the okay it does matter because what that does a it helps me okay get that platform going but what it does is it starts putting that podcast in places where other people can find it and it gives you different rankings and it helps bump you up to where more people consume this information number one number two you get it easier and and faster but then later on for me and just the overall momentum of what we're doing it just helps the whole whole thing so if you find value in these type of discussions please go over there and, and hit the follow hit the subscribe hit the likes do all do all the things that everybody asks you to do because it does help if you don't like these podcasts, why the hell are you watching it now? Number one. And number two, just move on. Don't click anything. All right? Just get out of here. If it's not for you, no worries. I understand. I don't care. I I, I do care. I will try. Yeah. Done. It is what it is. If you don't like it, shut the hell up and move on. If you do like it, please just give me, you know, like a five-star review on there or whatever. And just let's get this baby bumped up to where we can um, get more people listening to this type of content. Uh, and then the other thing too, is I'm going to, so I have got the rumble, uh, stuff up and running. I need to upload some more videos on there because you, like I said before, I've got row hunting resources podcast on rumble. I've got elk hunting Institute on rumble. 
and I've got Western Plains whitetails on Rumble, uh, as opposed to just the row hunting resources that that's there as well. But I'm start I'm going to start uploading the videos uh, of these podcasts and other videos on that. Uh, that platform here coming up. So if you want to watch these, that's where they're going to come. I will investigate how to go ahead and also put these video podcasts up on Spotify as well. Right now it's the audio because it's linked from an audio RSS feed. Uh, I've got to figure out how to get the, the video ones in there. But as of right now, the audio one's in there. I will also try to see if I can get these videos on Spotify as well. But for right now, just bear with it. Okay, so that's the the brief little update. And I'll save some. I've, I've got some other updates and more other information as well, but I'll hold off on that because I spent two and a half hours last time uh, talking about updates. All right, so let's dive into this. All right, so what happened on Monday? Okay, here's what. Here's here 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 we go. Here we go. Let. How do I want to say it? How do I, how do I want to set it up? Okay, so there is a there is a very well known, very prominent, very respectful, and a very effective, impactful uh, sportsman's organization that's out there just crushing it right now on our behalf, and and they're actually moving the needle uh, legislatively and and fighting for sportsmen's opportunities, and uh, they're awesome. Okay, I am a, I am a member of that organization. I respect that organization. I love what they're doing. Okay, and I and I think they are, they're they're awesome. I there we go, they're awesome. Okay. Well, I opened up my social media, and one they popped up on Instagram, and they had a post, and that post was essentially. I'm just going to paraphrase it because it was it was corrected, and I'll get to that here in a second. Essentially, it was that the the statement was in the general frame of animal activists want to claim that. Predators, large predators, can help control the spread of CWD. And then the statement went on to say, we will take our sportsmen, we'll take our science from, and in this case they linked, you know, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, wherein it says that hunting mountain lions can help slow the spread of CWD. Now, when I saw that, two things hit instantly. Two things hit my, hit me. Number one, the first statement: animal activists want to claim that predators can help stem or slow the spread or control the spread of CWD. I know where that comment came from. I know an example of where that comment came from. So it immediately linked to something in my mind. And then the second part of that was hunting mountain lions slows the spread of CWD. Huh? The freaking hell are you talking about? Because that made no sense to me. Okay. So immediately I had two things that tri- just, just click, bam, you've got my attention now. All right. So let me set up the, the first part. The, why was that first comment made? Well, in part, because when you look at the Colorado ballot initiative a couple years ago regarding the wolf reintroduction in Colorado. Now, again, let's, let's, let's not even talk about what's going on with wolves right now. That is going to be a part of the discussion coming up next week. But let's just table what's going on nationally with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife and the, and the ESA and all that stuff. Table it. 
because when the ballot initiative in Colorado was going on, that that was not a, that was not even in the picture. Okay, so the ballot initiative was to in to reintroduce wolves into Colorado. And one of the arguments that the animal activists, the wolf, the pro-wolf, the wolf advocates tried to make was that wolves would help slow the spread or control the spread of CWD in ungulates in Colorado. Now, we can have that. We're going to, no, we're going to talk about that here in just a moment. However, the response from the sportsman's in, uh, uh, the the anti wolf introduction reintroduction folks just absolutely just jumped all over that there god you're full of, that's a bunch of bullshit yeah that's that's just garbage there's no sign there's nothing oh, that's bull actually predators are going to spread CWD more and blah 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 and so it, they immediately jumped on that statement of the activists tried to just crush it and just dis- disintegrate any ounce of credibility it had and then tried to flip it and say, no, 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 it's going gonna, it's gonna to wildly exacerbate it. Both of those statements ended up being more, I won't, no, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop. No, I can't say that. There's problems with both of those statements. All right. So I remember hearing those arguments and I remember watching the reaction of the sportsman and I remember my reaction to the reaction that the anti-wolf people had sitting there saying, what the freaking hell are you guys doing because you're arguing the wrong stuff, all right? Again, these are going to be deeper conversations later on. So that is in the back of my mind. Okay. Right. Well, not even in the back of my. That went like that went from the back of my mind to like hit the back of my eyeballs and bounced around in there because it came right up front. I'm like, I know exactly where that animal activist would like you to believe that you know predators can help, you know, slow or spread the the CWD. I know where that came from, and and there's other places too, but really right up front with Colorado. Okay. So that was raw and right there. But when you give me that one and you just, bam, I'm I'm into it now. You've got my attention. And I remember the emotions that were around that statement to begin with. And then you follow it up with mountain lion hunting slows the spread of CWD. The freaking hell are you talking about? Because I've never heard of that. Okay. So in that little social media post, so immediately I'm like, bam, I, you know, it's like a salad's, what was it? Um. Oh, oh, I forget. Uh, Veep. Did you, I don't know if anybody, Veep, V-E-E-P. It was a show on TV uh, that it was basically about a a woman vice president. It was a comedy. It was was pretty funny and there was a character in there. Some of the the banter back and forth was pretty funny. And one of the things that I just busted out laughing because it was so perfect was... (laughs) Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna use an f bomb here, so just hit your mute button if you don't want to hear it. But one of the one character just screwed the pooch and threw the rest of the characters into this this what another. She's like, you just you just launched us into a salad spinner of fuck. 
And it just, and it just, I just laughed so hard because that's literally, can you, I just see that visual. We've got a salad spinner. You know what a salad spinner is where you get to wash your lettuce, your garden vegetables, and you put it in this basket and it's got the little pull cord. And, and the more you pull it, it spins faster and faster. And it just spins like just the centrifuge that just takes all the water and all everything else and spins it dry, right? The salad spinner. Well, it's a salad spinner of fuck. And, and that's literally where mine went, my mind went when I saw this. I, I read the first sentence, and my mind's in the salad spinner. And then I read the second one, and here he goes. And my mind just like, so here I go. I'm like, what the freaking hell are you talking? So, of course, it says, follow the link in the bio. All right? So I'm going, oh, yeah, I'm clicking that freaking link. So here goes click number one, link. I click on the link in the bio. It's a link tree, okay? So I go to the link tree and there's a whole bunch of it. And sure enough, I scroll down and the the link on the link tree says RMEF, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, because they already talked about that in the post. It said at RMEF official. That's the Elk Foundation's link, okay? Now I click their link. It opens up and the little link tree link says RMEF dash, what was it? Mountain Lion Hunting Slows CWD. Yes, I'm getting old. I probably should have bifocals. I'm sitting here. I can't. Anyway, Mountain Lion Hunting Slows CWD. The freaking hell is this? So Elk Foundation is saying this? So, of course, kapam, there's link number two. Click on that sucker. Boom. Here comes Elk Foundation's page. Their web page. Or their, I don't know if it was a social, I don't remember if it was a social media page or a web page. So I click on the link. And here's the article, or here, here's here's the discussion, and essentially was that they they talk about how hunting mountain a recent research uh, finding showed that hunting mountain lions slows transmission of disease. Okay, so I, I start reading through their discussion. Nowhere in there does it talk about CWD. I'm like, the freaking hell is this? Am I missing something? So in the Elk Foundation page, excuse me, here's a link. I'll go down this rabbit hole, click the link again, wink. Here it goes out to another article. And this article talks about, again, hunting alters viral transmission and evolution in a large carnivore. Huh? And then I go through the article or the discussion. Again, there's nothing in there that says anything about CWD. Like, What the freaking hell are we talking about? So here's another link. And that one, it says, if you want to see the study, and there's a little, you know, highlighted little hot link for the study. I'm like, let's go down the rabbit hole. Click that study. I want to read it. Boom. Brings it up to Nature. Okay. The the, the massive journal, Nature. And this, one, it, this, this study was published in Nature Ecology and Evolution. Well, I subscribe to, to Nature. I'm like, well, okay. So I click on the link. I open it up and it brings up the abstract. Now, the abstract on a scientific study is just basically, the, the if for lack of a better term, the executive summary. If you're if you're familiar with writing stuff and it, it, what the hell, it's the cliff notes of what the hell's going on here. What's Why are we asking a question? How did a question come up? Why are we asking the question? What are we going to do to figure out the, the answer to the question? What did we find out? And then how does this, you know, is, is there a discussion? Is there a management implication? What can we do with this information? It's basically a paragraph that just sums up the, the, the whole dang thing. Well, from the link, 
unless you're a subscriber, that's all you're going to get. You get a free, you get the, you get access to the abstract. So I read the abstract and again, there's nothing in there that talks about CWD. So let, let me, let me go through it a minute. All right. And this is what I want you to do. All right. I want, this is what you need to do, especially when people start talking about studies and papers and, and research and all this type of stuff. Because man, if you haven't learned your lesson by now with this COVID crap, these past two years about, oh, the science says this. And then you actually get into it and you're like, wait a minute, whoa, they never said that. You, you get one narrative about masks or you get one narrative about what the, what the vaccine is going to do. But then you actually go to the CDC website and you read what the what the actual CDC says, they're night and day different from what the media was saying. So just because someone cites a study or cites some research does not mean it's legit. They could absolutely be misrepresenting what the study even did, number one. Number two, sometimes if you read the study, the study is bullshit. The study design and how you set up is absolutely crap because some of these studies, some of this research is done by, and this is no slam or slight to anybody that has a master's, master's, PhD study, PhD uh, dissertations and research projects oftentimes are large and they can confer a hell of a lot more um, weight and substance to the, the, the validity of what's actually being written about in trans and the information investigated, the information gained from that investigation and the information and the, and the, uh, interpretations of what we can do as managers to put that information on the ground. A PhD study is, is a lot better than oftentimes a master's study. Now that's not to say a master's research study is not important, but you have to remember in many cases, master's research studies, research efforts are an exercise for the student to learn the, okay, so you go through high school, you take your statistics and math and everything else, and then you go to college and you maybe take in calculus and other things and other statistics courses, especially if you're going to go in the wildlife field and you, especially if you're going to go to the wildlife field, because a lot of times even your undergraduate career is going to set you up for Maybe you want to become a biologist at an agency or something or a researcher or whatever. So you, you'll have a taste of your statistics in your undergraduate, your undergraduate course. But when you go to get your master's, now it's the next step. Now you're designing a study. You're designing a, 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 an analysis type of deal. Okay. Oftentimes, it's just an exercise for the student to get the hang of, here's how I set things up, here's how I go about analyzing, here's how I identify and minimize my confounding variables or the limitations of my study in that XYZ. The, the number of research projects that are looking at, and this is especially true from Colorado State University when I was going to school there, we had just had excuse me, a very recent, and Colorado still to this day, has numerous wildfires, okay? These vast areas that get burned. It, it became this joke amongst the wildlife students that, you know, somebody was going to go get do a master's and they were going to look at dicky birds, the, react, the, the response to forest birds on a, a recent fire. Like, what? Like, seriously? 
you you could simply look at the wildlife. Okay, so there's there's a, a, a an agent or organization called the Wildlife Society. The Wildlife Society is a society for professional wildlife biologists and managers. Okay, you become a member there, and you get there's the this this place. It, I mean, you've got all sorts of places to publish work. Okay, again, here we are talking about nature, uh, ecology, and evolution, and nature has I don't know how many different journals. Just it's a massive massive body of of scientific. Uh, literature, but you can, there's so many other places that you can publish your work. Well, the wildlife society publishes uh, at least the wildlife society bulletin, I guess the wildlife professional now, and then you got the journal of wildlife management, which is a very prestigious uh, publication. Okay. So there's the, the, just if you look at the basics of just the wildlife society and the, and the publications that they produce, I bet you, you could stack the number of master study research papers that look at the response of dicky birds, just your little little tiny passer and birds, the response of those birds to a forest fire, comparing what's in a forest fire burn area with what's outside the bird, uh, it's got to be this deep because it's the most basic entry level study design. It's easy study design. It's easy analysis. You can go out. You can you can create your study design. You can go out into the field and collect data. You can run that data through all sorts of statistical models and analyses, and then you can puke out the other end what you learned. Okay, is it earth-shattering significant? Maybe like one of them will find they'll trip onto something, and you're like, "Holy shit, I didn't know that!" And then they stumble on it. But most of the time. What you're doing when you read that study is like, okay, we've been here, done that before. What are they doing different? What did they see? What were the confounding variables? And how did they how did they address it? And can we really look at anything? You know, most of them are just a dime a dozen. I mean, it's just like a, it's just like a, a, a carbon cop. You just go to a, a printer and just just print them off because they're all roughly the same. Okay, a master's thesis, a master's study uh, publication, sometimes is riddled with problems not from a not from an educational standpoint the the person may have gone through the process and 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 this was one of my independent studies when i was undergraduate i wanted to study i wanted to look at the difference that age structure had on some of the it doesn't matter i'm not going to go into it but i wanted to look at cow calf interactions and i wanted to look at a few things in there and i the how i set it up was good how I wanted to analyze it was good, so all those things were right on the right on the money. The issues were, as I was moving through the process, I identified that there were massive limitations that were going to impact the the ability for me to get any conclusion, a valid conclusion, out of anything I was I was doing. The, the, the confounding variables that I could not account for were muddying the waters of what I wanted to look at that I couldn't do the analysis that I wanted to do. I got a great score. I, I got it. I mean, I, I crushed that entire operation because I went through the valid scientific process. I went through valid statistical analysis and I identified valid confounding variables that impacted my study and limited the conclusions that could be drawn from it. That could have easily been translated. I could have gone out and collected more data. That could have easily been translated into a master study. But what you can glean from it, not much. Okay, it was an exercise. That was what I would need to do to get my master's. Okay, checked all the boxes. I get my master's degree. Bingo. 
Did I do something earth-shattering for the world of science? No, but I now have the experience of, of setting up study design, setting up statistical analyses, identifying confounding variables and th those things that, that cloud the issue, and then I can defend what I did and I can identify how these things either are applicable today for things that are that are prescient, prescient uh, uh, management issues, or I can identify these are the things that I was not able to do, and this is why these things are limited. Blah 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 blah. Now that sets me up to where if I say, okay, I want to be, I want to go into a PhD thesis. Okay, you learned your lessons over in the master side. Get your shit straight on your PhD side. And that's why PhD dissertations are so stressful, so big. They're talking multiple years and you're, it's not a rote exercise at this point. You're proving something and, and you're, you're, you've got to make the case. Okay. You've got to do something more significant. All right. Otherwise it's just out. Okay. So anyway, I, I say all that because, and we can talk about it in the future if you want to. I was just looking at um, uh, an article just last week about some study with blacktail prairie dogs in the front range of Colorado. And they were looking at, you know, right now, a big thing for uh, wildlife ecologists and, and conservation biology type people is the, the ecological noise, you know, human induced ambient noise, traffic noise, people noise, city noise, uh, construction noise, uh, mining noise, just any, just noise, anthropogenic caught, oops, anthropogenic noise, human caused noise on the landscape and how that actually can impact wildlife, uh, behavior, uh, reproduction, life processes. All right. And so there was one about blacktail prairie dogs on the front range. And it was a, a, a colony that we know of and, and, and an area that we're, we're familiar with. And I read through it and I'm like, this is garbage. Not that it was garbage in the fact that what that student did, what the student did checked all the boxes. My guess is, I, I'm guessing that that's what it was, was a master's thesis. Um, the student checked all the boxes. They set up a, a study. They, they, they set up a, a, a control treatment. They set it, so they had a study design and then they had a, a way to analyze the data that they collected from that data. And then they puked out, this is what we found and this is the discussion that we came from it. The problem was immediately, and I read it and I was like, garbage. And then I, I handed over to, to my wife, Kelly, and I was like, what, take a look at this. What do you mean? I mean, she, as soon as she read it, she's like, well, that doesn't, it, okay. It, there was something that as somebody, as, as a, as a, Biologists that have a significant knowledge of blacktail prairie dog behavior and uh, activity on the landscape, we immediately identified the number one limitation that the study design had that basically eliminated any significance that that study did because they didn't identify the, the flaw in their study design. Okay. So yes, there's a published paper out there. There's a, there's a published paper that, that says that, you know, traffic noise, human induced noise can cause a problem. In this case, what it was, was it didn't cause a problem. Human induced noise actually helped the survival of these prairie dogs. It's like, no, no, it, no, it didn't. Not, not from a, not from a practical management 
standpoint because of the flaw that they overlooked. But anybody that's an act that any, okay. So in this case, that study would be used for city planners, uh, uh, developers, anybody that wanted to develop a road, uh, a trail, uh, housing development could go over and latch onto this one and say, see, if I develop and I increase the human noise in this area, it actually helps preserve the life of, of these small rodents. You're darn right. They're absolutely going to latch onto that, that paper. And to the layperson, they're going to read it and go, oh, hell yeah, that, that makes sense. No, it's wrong. Okay. So you have to read these things with a critical eye and go, does it, is what they're doing correct? And do, is, is what, what they did, did it actually give results that they say it gave and are the management implications of it accurate based on what they actually did and what they didn't do and, and the confounding variables or the external, you know, uh, components or variables and, and, um, processes that are in play, uh, through the study. Okay. All of that to say, that's why I'm going to read this. So, so I click on this. I'm like, okay. So I read the abstract of this hunting alters viral transmission and evolution in a large carnival carnivore. I'm like, okay, I, the abstract doesn't say a damn thing about CWD, but maybe somewhere in the paper, maybe somewhere down later on in the discussion or whatever, it, it loops in chronic wasting disease. So I'm like, all right, fine. Here, click, go down the rabbit hole, click, here we go. And so I bring up the paper. So here we are. Let's, let's read through this a little bit. Okay. Shall we? I'm going to take these off a minute. No, no, I'm not. Hunting altered. Okay. So this is published in nature. In So nature, uh, ecology and evolution. All right. This is, this was published on uh, January 27th of 2022. Hence the reason why I was so like this, ooh, ah, new thing. All right. Published Nature, Ecology, and Evolution, Volume 6, pages 174 through 182. Boom, boom, boom. All right. Let me read the abstract. Hunting, again, the abstract is just the, the general overview. Hunting can fundamentally alter wildlife population dynamics, but the consequences of hunting on pathogen transmission and evolution remain poorly understood. Here, we present a study that leverages a unique landscape scale quasi-experiment coupled with pathogen transmission tracing, network simulation, and phylodynamics to provide insights into how hunting shapes feline immunodeficiency virus, FIV, dynamics in puma can color, mountain lions. We show that, okay, what did, what did that just say? <clears throat> how hunting shapes feline immunodeficiency virus, feline, FIV, which is essentially the, the feline version of HIV, human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, which turns into AIDS, okay? Cats, felines have a disease which is basically feline immunodeficiency virus, okay? Nasty stuff, highly transmiss transmissible between cats, and it can cause all sorts of health problems as it, as it goes down the line, as it progresses in their system, all right? So, okay, so this seems like they're looking at... in to provide insights into how hunting shapes feline immunodeficiency virus dynamics in mountain lions. Okay, that doesn't say anything about CWD. Continue. We show that removing hunting pressure enhances the role of males in transmission. 
increases the viral population growth rate and increases the role of evolutionary forces on the pathogen compared to when hunting was reinstated. Changes in transmission observed with the removal of hunting could be linked to short-term social changes while the male puma population increased. These findings are supported through comparison with a region with stable hunting management over the same period or same time period. This study shows that routine wildlife management can have impacts on pathogen transmission and evolution not previously considered. End of abstract. And there you go. This is why the sports this is why Elk Foundation latched onto this and was like, that's awesome. Okay, because that last statement here, this study shows that routine wildlife management, the North American model of wildlife conservation, this is why we got to stand on the science. We got to have the wildlife professionals and we got to have hunting and blah, blah. Okay, right? This study shows that routine wildlife management can have impacts on pathogen transmission and evolution not previously considered. Okay, I didn't see, I still... I'm still not seeing anything with CWD. All right, let's just go down through there. And we can go through the main thing. Okay, so human actions commonly alter wildlife populations. Okay, a classic example is hunting, which often has density and demographic effects on population. Recreation quota-based hunting of carnivore populations is a common, uh, is, sorry. Recreational quota-based hunting of carnivore populations is common across the globe. Now, throughout there, there's citations. They're they're linking to other scientific studies and papers. Okay, I'm not gonna go. I'm not gonna read off those citations. You can do that on your. You can look this up and go on your own. However, the consequences of these actions, these these management, you know, the quota based hunting of carnivores, the consequences of these actions on pathogen transmission and evolution are largely unknown, and the few available studies report contradictory findings. Okay, that's interesting. Theory predicts that for pathogens with density-dependent transmission, density-dependent meaning the more animal, the, the more people or more animals packed into an area, the faster or the more that, that pathogen spreads. Okay, so density-dependent transmission. Hunting-induced reductions in density should decrease transmission rates. If you decrease the amount of animals that are on the landscape that can be sharing the disease, you're going to reduce the disease transmission. Makes common sense. Yet, make little difference. Theory predicts that for pathogens with density-dependent transmission, hunting-induced reductions in density should decrease transmission rates, yet make little difference to transmission dynamics for frequency-dependent pathogens. That's good. So you got density-dependent and frequency-dependent. Those are two different ways that you can have... Uh, these feedback loops. Empirical data and models suggest that reducing reducing host density can either decrease, have no effect, or even increase pathogen transmission and prevalence. The complex interplay between host density, demography, and behavior makes predicting the impacts of hunting on pathogen dynamics difficult. And it, you know, goes human harvest of wild populations is often non-random. For example, a preference for, in, we're talking about mountain lions, a preference for large males, <clears throat> or, you know, you're going after a particular behavior. And if different sexes, ages, or behavioral types contribute disproportionately to disease transmission, this could have implications for disease dynamics. 
Empirical work shows that population reduction can increase pathogen prevalence via social perturbation. Okay, we start. We can go. They, they just keep going down through. Here's all the basis. Here's all the background. Here's what we're looking at. And here's why we're looking at this because we we want to see if we can tease something meaningful out from here. All right. <clears throat> RNA, vi RNA viruses are ideal agents for examining the effect of hunting and the, cessa the cessation of hunting on pathogen transmission and evolution. Where have we heard about RNA viruses? Genomic variation rapidly accrues in RNA viruses. Huh, you mean different strains? Like, anyway. Enabling estimation of fine-scale epidemiology epidemiological processes such as transmission to be host, blah, blah, blah. Basically, okay, so here we go. Blah, 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 blah. This is all scientific stuff, background. All right, so here we get into what they're doing. So here in this study, we leverage cross-sectional viral data collected from closely monitored mountain lions in two areas of Colorado or two areas in Colorado during the same period. A quote-unquote treatment region in which hunting pressure changed over time and a quote-unquote, stable management region acting as a control, hereafter referred to as a stable region. We sequenced, vi we sequenced viral genes sampled from capture puma for epidemic RNA retrovirus, RNA retrovirus, puma feline immunodeficiency virus, which is FIV puma, the mountain lion version of it, which is a host-specific pathogen considered relatively benign and not associated with over disease outcomes. Well, that's interesting because in feral cats, it is a, an issue. So what they're saying here is that the Puma FIV is maybe not as bad. Okay, well, okay. So FIV is a lifelong infection, yep, that is not eliminated by sterilizing immunity and is, and is epidem epidemic in most mountain lion populations. All right, I didn't know that. Before this, I didn't know that. So previously infected individuals can also become infected with a new FIV, newer strains, as Apex, again, we're blah, 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 and, and, blah, 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 and just keep on going. We analyzed, you know, I analyzed this, blah, blah, blah. And it just, throughout the whole thing, I'm still reading it. It's FIV, FIV, FIV. At, at no point am I hearing anything in here with CWD. All right. And so what they're looking at, so for those that are, that are familiar with Colorado in the past, so, um, <clears throat> And I believe it would, don't quote me on this. If I'm, if my, this is a while back now. If my memory serves, there was a push because a couple things. One, Ungapagre Plateau, there was a massive mule deer study down, uh, that was conducted down there uh, many, many years ago, decades ago. And I think part of that, what ended up happening, it was, it was still a, a, a very focal research oriented chunk of the real estate in southwest Colorado. Mountain lion predator advocates, the animal activist advocates for wolves and mountain lions, etc., were pushing hard again the attempts to stop mountain lion hunting in Colorado are nothing new, okay? All of you that are getting fired up about this where they're attacking mountain lion hunting and bobcat hunting and and lynx hunting you know, again, it's it's one of those memes where the guy's sitting there with a, with a noose around his neck and said, your first time, you know, okay, this is nothing new, 
Okay, this constantly churns back or back and back or back and back around. And every time they bring it back around, they're hoping for a, a new sympathetic ear that will give them some more leg up. The animal activist, that is. Well, one of these times, they made the claim that the, the agency didn't have enough data to support what the agency was claiming on mountain lions. If I remember correctly, this area was put up as a test, a, a research area for the Division of Wildlife, at the time it was Division of Wildlife, for the Collar Parks and Wildlife to basically study mountain lion population dynamics so that they had better data from which to say, here's how we're going to move forward with our mountain lion management. Okay, One of the, the common attacks that animal activists use against predator hunting is predator hunt predator population dynamics are not modeled the same way deer and elk and moose population dynamics are modeled. All right, I I have got a request in uh, with a buddy of mine at Colorado Parks and Wildlife to have this discussion. Unfortunately, because of the politics of going on things right now and, and who's running the show at the governor's office, they're they've got it. They're they're walking on eggshells, and so we haven't had that conversation yet. I'm hoping we can get this conversation going. Anyway. This study, this study area in part was set up so that the the state could have more robust data to back up the management recommendations and the management actions that the, the agency takes in response to activists' claims that the, the state doesn't have the data. All right. Does that make sense? I hope it makes sense. So anyway, a chunk of ground in southwest Colorado was closed to mountain hunting, mountain lion hunting. So no mountain lion hunting for many years. All right. So that area was used as that quote unquote treatment area to where let's just, if we shut down all mountain lion hunting, let's see what happens to the mountain lion population dynamics on this landscape. And let's look at, you know, mule deer and let's look at elk and let's look at, you know, maybe desert bighorns and all the other things that are down there. Let's look at this ecosystem. Let's look at what's going on down there. If we remove mountain lion hunting off of the landscape. Meanwhile, there's another, well, there's many areas, but there's another area in Colorado, a completely ge a different geographic area that has traditional mountain lion hunting. The, the mountain lion hunting in that area has been pretty consistent through the decades. The terrain, the habitat, the, the moisture regime, the mule deer population, the elk population, very similar. There's, there's a lot of similarities between these two areas. So habitat, ungulate populations, prey base for the mountain lions is very similar, but one has stable hunting on it. One area has had no hunting on it. All right. So that's why when this, when they're saying the stable area, the stable area is the hunted area, the one that's been hunted for decades at a pretty you know steady rate over the years. Okay. So here we, they start going down through it, blah, 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 blah. We constructed a transmission network, both here, the treatment region, the treatment, okay. Where they had no mountain lion hunting. Uh, for mountain lions was a 12,000 kilometer square kilometer area, Western Colorado, which hunting before the study was common practice. Hunting was excluded for five year period, November, 2004 to November, 2009 and reinstated for a future five year harvest, five years afterward, 2009 to, to, uh, 2014 hunting period. The harvest rate averaged 15% of the independent mountain lions that use study, blah, 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 blah. It just keeps on going. Uh, okay. Just goes through what I was just saying. 
Oh, maybe they were just comparing the both. So maybe I spoke out. When hunting resumed in 2009, the overall population declined after a lag of two years with male abundance estimates similar to the start of the non-hunting period. So before, when there was hunting, you had this many males to this many females. When there was no hunting, the number of males went up to the number of females. So you had a a bunch of, of males and a bunch of females. And then after they opened up hunting again, hunters went in there. After about a two-year period, whoop, now we're back down to this many males and this many females. Okay. Uh, yeah. So there you go. However, you know, so the decline in abundance of males was severe and rapid, with males greater than six years old apparently eliminated from the population after two hunting seasons. The mountain lion hunters did a good job down there. Apparently, they were efficient. I won't say a good job, depending on what your 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 standard of, of measurement is and value set is, but they were efficient in removing large males. Okay. Uh, bum, 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 bum. In contrast, over the same 10 year period, the stable region and the front range, go what I was talking about, continued minimal hunting pressure, which is no change from the management practice. Previous genetic analysis revealed that puma in these mountain lions in these regions were genetically distinct with few clear migrants. Okay. So it was a pretty distinct population of cats. Uh, Nearly all individuals sampled in both regions were adults and both sections were evenly represented in their study. Individual survival probabilities, blah, 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 blah. Here we go. It just keeps on going through there how they they next. Okay, so at some point, at no point now, am I still in CWD? I still haven't come across CWD. Cessation of hunting shifts transmission networks and increases our value. Okay, we found that reducing hunting mortality had major effects on female, female, feline immunodeficiency virus transmission dynamics. Even though the regions were of comparable geographical size and came in and contained similar mountain lion abundance, our estimate, our, our estimates for the same virus over the 10 year period were twofold higher in the treatment region, the area that had no mountain lion hunting compared to the stable region hunting with non-overlapping 95% high probability density intervals indicating that this this difference is significant. Again, statistics. Basically, in the area where there was no hunting, FIV, what did they say? Twofold higher. FIV was twofold higher where there was no hunting than it was in the places that were hunted. Okay, let me just keep on going. So again, I keep going down through, and some. So this is all about FIV, all about FIV, 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 which these guys had said is in cats is generally benign, so to speak, but it it is it is communicable. Okay, keep on going. Keep on. hunting alters diversity and selective pressure on the virus. Alter transmission dynamics at population level associated changes viral blah blah. Blah, 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 blah. Just, just, just get go down here. What are we? So, conclusions. The collection of pathogen molecular data from well-sampled wildlife population across time is a logistical, challenging, yet with ever cheaper and mobile sequencing platforms of potential. Blah blah blah. Our pro. Uh, anyway, now that was just about the how they did it. Here we go. Here we go. All right, our work provides a valuable case study on how changing hunter pressure, hunting pressure, can have unexpected consequences for pathogen transmission and evolution across scales. 
Our analytical approach was particularly valuable in helping to de deconstruct how shifts in population structure imprint on pathogen dynamics and evolution. For example, in previous work, using landscape genetic models only detected weak or incons inconsistent sex effects shaping FIV spread. Our transmission network and phylodynamic approach, in contrast, was able to clearly distinguish the role of males, male mountain lions, in putative transmission chains and, yeah, and in accruing genetic diversity, even though the data requirements are similar. Scale dependency, blah, 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 blah. Again, here is statistical stuff, blah, 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 structure, blah, 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 blah. Our results provide a case study of the complex interplay between wildlife management and demography in shaping pathogen dynamics. In our case, the cessation of hunting in a region facilitated demographic change via increased male survivor, survivorship and abundance. We increased the male component on the landscape with potential increases in male-to-male -male contact behavior. Again, this is a, this is a communicable, this is spread by uh, saliva. Um, FIV is spread by saliva and mucal membranes. And, and uh, if you know anything about male cats, fights, territorial markings, all sorts of other things, there's a lot of nose-to-nose -nose and there's a lot of overlap in, in uh contact, if you will, for males. It's not unlike CWD, okay? It's not unlike CWD in the transmission rates, okay? But at some, at no point so far are we hearing anything about CWD. But it is an interesting study. It's showing that in this case, when you removed mountain lion hunting, the population of males in that, the, the number of males, the abundance of males in that population increased and because of the increase in males, that meant there's an increase in male-to-male -male contact and interplay, interspecific, you know, contact to where we are intraspecific contact to where you are increasing the transmission of FIV. Whereas in contrast, in the area that had the hunting, because hunters, and here you go. In Colorado, now this is not across the United States, in Colorado, one of the concessions that the agency made to the mountain lion advocate, you know, the predator advocates was, the, the claim was that, that hunters were going to drive the mountain lion population uh, extinct uh, or significantly harm the mountain lion population because hunters are out there killing females, especially killing females with cubs. The agency said, no, that's not going to happen. The animal activists came back and said, show us the data. And then the, the, the agency sat there and was like, uh, uh, well, uh, okay. So one of the concessions we made was, this is why if you want to hunt mountain lions, if you want to get a mountain lion tag in Colorado, you have to take a test now that shows that you know how to make it, make the determine, you know, you know how to identify a male mountain lion from a female mountain lion. Now it is not illegal to harvest a female mountain lion, but they are the activists and the agency based because of this concession stress that we would prefer if hunters would select males over females. And that's what a lot of hunters want to do anyway. You'd rather kill a big honking 200 pound Tom than a hundred pound female. Okay. Or an 80 pound female or whatever. Right. So you want a big, a lot of hunters want that big gigantic cat. And if they can get a big tomcat, because the tomcat is going to, okay, 
This is a different discussion about trophies, but when we're talking about Pope and Young, when we're talking about a trophy, Mountain Lion Hunters going out after a trophy, part of that trophy score is not only how big the cat is, how much did it weigh, and you know the, the, the prestige of killing a mountain lion is not only how big was the cat, how heavy was the cat, how long from nose to tip of tail was that cat, but a lot of them, if you're going to, especially if you do it with a bow, if you want to go Pope and Young, or I guess if you will shoot with a, right, you know, a handgun or a rifle or whatever, and you want to put it in Boone and Crockett, it's the measurement of the skull. The width of the skull bone, the cheek, the the basically what ends up being the cheekbones, okay, or the mandibular bone. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The arch on the side of the of the the skull versus the front to back of the you know the skull from the front of the top of the teeth to the back of the process in the skull. Okay, length plus width. All right, that score. Well, your males are going to give you a bigger pumpkin head than the smaller slider females. So a lot of sportsmen want to select a uh, male cat anyway, but regardless, the activists wanted to decrease the number of females being harvested. The agency acquiesced to their request to have a program in place by which we encourage hunters to decrease their female take. And so now there's a test in place where you have to prove that you know what you're doing as far as taking a male versus a female, even though, again, it's not illegal to to shoot a female line, right? Anyway, this whole thing keeps going down the line of saying, okay, when when we're going out and hunters are selecting to go after male mountain lions, and they showed in this population when they opened up lion hunting afterwards, Within two years, the lion hunters selectively went after the big males anyway, and they just drove the male population of the wildlife or, or of the wild population of mountain lions. Wild, they're all wild. The population of, of males in that population down to a lower level. That lower level of male population in ended up having a lower instance of FIV in the overall population. Okay, so in this case, this, to me, this is one of those things where you read this whole freaking article. Number one, your, your immediate thing is again, remember, remember the tree that, that where we went down through, um, okay, messages. we went down through the whole, this, the link, 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 because it was chronic wasting. Hunting mountain lions slows the spread of, of, Chronic wasting disease. This is the study they're talking about. There's no, there's, there's no mountain lion. There's no, there's not, no discussion of mountain lions and chronic wasting disease here. It's all FIV. And then number two, this is one of those things where you you, you read it and you're like, well, yeah, duh. You know, it, it kind of makes sense. Well, of course, if you're going to reduce the amount of nose to nose contact the male cat the cats have, well, of course you're going to reduce uh, uh, that type of transmission of the disease. The beautiful thing about this, though, is it's a statistical analysis. It's, a, it's, a, it's an actual statistical significant study to where when animal activists later on come back and say, you can't say, but no, 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 no. Yes, we can. We can say now with mountain lion hunting versus non-mountain lion hunting, when we're talking about feline immunodeficiency virus, and maybe other viruses that are spread in a similar manner, we can show that, yes, hunting actually helps out. 
okay? We can statistically prove it now. We can't, we, when somebody wants to challenge the agency and says, show us the data, here you go. It's statistically valid, it was peer-reviewed, and it was put in a massively prestigious journal, all right? This is, this is important. Even though the study itself was a kind of a no-brainer common sense, it makes sense of what we're talking about here, they were active, they were able to actually prove that yes, common sense is actually the fact and here's how we went about it and now we have the data and now everybody else has the data and you can't come at us and, and tell us that we don't have the data anymore. So the study is good and quite honestly, when you go through it and you look at the authors, the author, I mean, hell, I, I mean, I know some of the people in here, especially, you know, Matt Aldrich, I know Matt Aldrich and, and he's a good researcher. He's a very good researcher uh, in Colorado. So it, it, this is legit. So it's a good study. And, and I'm glad that Elk Foundation latched onto it and, and shared it because it's important, especially in this day and age where hunting is being challenged both on an ethical level and a moral level, as well as a scientific credibility, especially predator hunting is being challenged from a, a, a statistical or a, an ecological standpoint, okay? From a, a sound wildlife management standpoint, all right? So this is a legit article the freaking hell does it have to do with chronic wasting disease? Not a damn thing. So here we go. I go off the salad spinner. So I jump back over to the original art. I'm like, what that? And I did guilty, guilty. First comment. I was bam. I'm like, guys, you need to pull this thing. You need to pull this, this post because it's a blatant misrepresentation of what this study actually said. There's not a damn bit of anything in here that has to do with chronic wasting disease. <coughs> and here's where I was guilty. And here's where I was wrong. And for what it's worth, apologies to Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Because I did. Because, again, the, it was the in the post, it said, we'll take our information from Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, which is insinuating the Elk Foundation is one that's saying that this is related to chronic wasting disease. And then when you click that link and you go to the link tree, it says R-M-E-F dash hunting mountain lions slows CWD. So immediately the initial reaction is Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation is saying that this is this study shows that mountain lion hunting slows CWD. Bullshit. It doesn't say a damn bit of that. No, wrong, incorrect. Okay, now, so I my comment was the Elk Foundation ought to be embarrassed, if not flat out admonished, for putting out this ba basically propaganda and you know manipulation of of this information. That's bull. It was wrong. You are purposely misrepresenting what this article said simply to latch onto two very uh, emotionally charged subjects: one, chronic wasting disease, and number two, the accusations. Remember, going back to what animal activists have been saying that you know predators can help slow, you know, leaving predators alone and letting them do what they want to do can help slow CWD, of which the sportsman community and a lot of of, of conservation organizations were like, "Ah, oh, that's bullshit." Okay, so this to me on the surface immediately triggered to where I'm like, you're full of shit. This is just nothing but bullshit propaganda. You took a study that was a legit study and you tried to link it to something completely different that you can, you knew that you could grab onto and purposely manipulate and sensationalize and trigger an emotional response. You sons of freaking bitches. No bullshit wrong. <clears throat> I was wrong. 
I have a tendency, just like many of us, to get fired up about emotional things, all right? And sometimes we don't check ourselves as fast, as deeply as we need to. And I am guilty for not checking myself as quickly as I, as thoroughly as, thoroughly as I should. Because <clears throat> I fired off that comment. I'm like, this is freaking bullshit. And then I, two, a couple things happened. As I started going, just, meh, again, salad spinner, I'm spinning, all right? I stopped pulling the handle and I'm starting to slow down, okay? I started thinking. Jordan Peterson talks all the time, and, and this is a valid, a, a fundamental valid principle to, to always hold dear in your life for everything. I mean, we've always heard, never make a, a decision, an important decision from an emotional state, right? Because you just don't make good decisions when you're emotional. Whether it's it's a, it's a big decision or, or just posting on, on social media. If you're emotional on something, just freaking pump the brakes and just take a breath. Okay, I did not do that. But Jordan Peterson talks about it all the time, and this is great. He says, do not attribute maliciousness to something that simply can be attributed to incompetence. Now, I'm not saying that to be purposefully harsh. Do not attribute something, do not attribute maliciousness, evil, propaganda, you're, you're, you're purposefully misleading, you're purposely twisting this, you're simply trying to, you know, whip up the emotion in people to get them to do some bullshit thing, and, and this is wrong. It was unrighteous. It was fraud. Okay? That's maliciousness. Do not attribute maliciousness to something that can simply be chalked up to an accident, an oversight, a mistake, an innocent mistake, or just, or another version of just emotional response and, and subconscious, just, it was innocent. It was, this is where the incompetence comes from. It, it you, you just, it wasn't meant that way. All right. It was an accident. So I failed. I, Chris Rowe failed to keep that principle in mind when I fired my the, the nature of the way I, I responded to that social media post. And then the other one that I that I did, and this is an apology to Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, was I went back and through and looked at it. At no, at no time could I discern that Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation actually ever said it was linked to CWD. The link, the, 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 the post from the sportsman's organization said so. In, 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 implied it. They never overtly said, well, they did. They, they said it. And then their, in, their link that they had to the Elk Foundation page put R-M-E-F dash Mountain Lion Hunting Slow CWD. So the claim was that the Elk Foundation did. But at no time when I went back through and looked at stuff, did I actually see the Elk Foundation doing that. Now, I've been critical of the Elk Foundation numerous times in the past, and I have no problem defending my criticisms of them in the past. But in this case, my criticism was wrong. It was, it was, I, I believe it was, in fact, misplaced because 
about the same time I realized, wait a minute, I don't think Elk Foundation actually said that it was related to CWD. I go back to social media because I was going to make a correction of my own. And then all of a sudden I look and boink, here's a message on my thing where this organization immediately reached out to me. We were like, Chris, thank you. You brought, thank you for bringing this up. We apologize. It was not our intent. You're right. It is misleading. We're going to make it, we're going to correct that. Thank you for bringing that to our attention. That was not the intent. Bingo. So there it is. Whether what I, I I have no reason to suspect that they were being disingenuous about their their comment to me, because they immediately went and then when I looked at their their post they immediately corrected it they they, they corrected the entire thing took out the the CWD it was just about this article as this article is presented okay so they corrected it to, kudos to them and that's why I I love this organization and and it's Sportsman's Alliance so I I love that organization they do phenomenal work they are absolutely out there grinding every day constructively and and favorably on our behalf they're awesome okay and they had the integrity to go to immediately look at it and go shit we made a mistake it was not our intention you brought it to our attention we we corrected it not only are we going to correct it we're going to reach out to you chris and say thank you for bringing it to attention we're going to fix this thanks for being and i and at that point i was like okay i'm going to go over and apologize to elk foundation because i shouldn't have said well they had removed my comment which is fair you know sometimes you sit there and you say censorship on some of these things is bullshit no that was fair that was fair for them to remove my comment because it was no longer germane to what was going on there and and it was rightful to to remove it all right now the the unfortunate thing in this whole thing about this post okay the unfortunate thing is there are you know how instagram and the and the social and the facebook models are the algorithm works you open it up you're going to have a list of posts that you can flick through and read, right? Or go through. But you're going to scroll for a while and then all of a sudden Instagram is going to refresh or else you're going to you're going to run through it and then if you close out of it and come back, it's going to refresh and you're going to have a whole new list of things that you can look at. You're not going to come back across that same thing you just looked at unless you scroll 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 until you get the little notification it's almost it's almost you don't even notice it it says you're all caught up you have to purposefully click the little link that says view older posts otherwise as you continue to scroll instagram and facebook are just going to start throwing you random stuff that they think you're going to be interested in based on what you normally engage with, all right? So unless you know that, unless you go down to where you finally are all caught up and it says click on older posts and then you click on older posts and then you scroll, 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 scroll to go back to that old post, you're never going to see the correction. So the, and, and again, for what that that entire thing was an accident. It was a it was it, it was it was an emotionally charged accident. The effect, however, is that some people that read that are going to think, well, hunting slows hunting mountain lions slows the spread of chronic wasting disease. That is the impression that they just got. You have a very powerful, very very well respected organization saying it. And they're referencing another gargantuan conservation organization that says it. So from the layperson's, you know, the average person's perception, as you scroll through it, you think, 
Well, that's true. And so the problem I have with that type of stuff, because this happens all the time, whether it's an accident in this case versus some other even sportsman organizations that are progressive sportsman's organizations that will take a topic, they will cherry pick a very, you know, emotionally charged aspect of the topic. They'll pull that out. They might twist it around and then they'll throw it in the face of sportsmen and say, do you want to, do you want to protect this? Do you want to save this? Well, if you do, then you need to, you know, become a member and, and click here and, and sign on to here and, and, and get a hold of your senators or get a hold of your representatives or get a hold of your commission and, and fire off this thing. Hold the freaking phone. Is that what actually is going on? Or is that the emotional thing that you want me to rat latch onto so that I emotionally fire in the direction your organization already wants to go. And is that in the best interest of me and all other sportsmen? Sometimes maybe. I can tell you in many cases, no. So there's all sorts of people. The media does this all the time with newspaper articles and 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 and, and social media posts and news stories. They'll purposefully misrepresent something. They know damn well that they purposefully misrepresented it. Get the information out there. Get the impression in someone's mind. If then later someone comes back to say bullshit on them, oh they'll point they'll 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 print, you know, if it's a print article, they'll print a retraction. You know, I like got page six under the fold underneath this full page ad of something that you don't give a crap about. And they say, oh, by the way, we made a mistake the other day. How many people are going to read that retraction? No one. How many people pay attention to a retraction, even if it's put in their face? No one. Why? Because you can never reason a man out of something they were never reasoned into. You can never reason a man or reason a person out of something that they've never been reasoned into. If the if something triggered your emotion, you're going to latch onto it. And you latched onto it from an emotional standpoint. I'm guilty. You latch onto it from an emotional standpoint. After that, it does not matter how much logic and reason and corrections and everything else come into play. You still have that in your brain. That still seed is that seed is still in there. Okay? This is why when I saw this, and I've seen sportsman organizations do this before, I've seen conservation organizations do this before, I've seen progressives do this constantly. That's why I, I have no use for progressives. I don't care if you're a sportsman that's a progressive or a, a, a leftist, communist, socialist, whatever. I don't give a shit. I, I, I despise the progressive ideology. Ends justify the means. I'll do whatever I need to do to get you to do what I want you to do. And if I have to lie to you, if I have to cheat you, I have to perpetuate fraud on you, I give zero shits as long as you do what I want you to do. That's bullshit. All right? So when I saw this, I knew what was going on from the, the previous wolf issue in Colorado. I'm looking at two well-respected organizations that are linked to this bullshit statement. And I'm like, what the freaking hell? No, we cannot have our good organizations engaged in this propaganda bullshit. And I emotionally fired. Now, I was wrong in accusing RMEF of doing this because, like I said, I, I can't see the link that RMEF actually said it. Maybe they did. I don't know. But I, I I have no proof that they did. And number two, I was I jumped to the maliciousness side rather than saying, hey, guys, uh, I do hope you understand that this is bullshit. You know, it doesn't have anything to do with CWD. 
I could have gone the route of, you guys made a mistake and it was an innocent mistake. I understand it was an innocent mistake, but how about we correct it? I didn't do that. That's that's on me, okay? And it's on them that they made the mistake of allowing this to happen because there are going to be some people now that believe that mountain lion hunting slows the spread of chronic wasting disease. And the problem with that is, again, I go back to all the time. You don't have to like animal activists. You don't have to... to, to, to respect them. You don't have to like them. You don't have to uh, value their value set. You don't have to do shit. I don't give a... You don't... None of it. You will, however, swallow every freaking policy that they shove down your throat. Because if they make a better argument or if they destroy... They utterly destroy yours... In the public eye, you're done. You've lost. Whether we're talking about the public eye of a commission, whether we're talking about the public eye of a legislature, or in the worst case scenario, we're talking about the public eye of the non-hunter or the, the general non-consumptive user in the general public in a ballot initiative. Because here's the problem. Somebody go, takes this, some sportsman takes this in, that information, that post that says mountain lion hunting slows the spread of CWD and goes to a commission meeting goes to a legislative hearing, goes to, to a, a ballot box discussion or whatever, and gets up and, and wants to testify to someone of an important decision-making process while the activists are in the room, and you come up and you throw that bullshit up, up you know, as your evidence of why your, your position is righteous? Do you know how bad they're gonna, the activists are going to jump up there and eviscerate you and your credibility? You're going to look like a fool and they will absolutely do it. They will gut you, take your intestines out and wrap it around your neck and choke you with it because they're going to get up there and be like, what the hell are you talking about? This study doesn't talk about that. Nowhere does this study talk about CWD. You're making up lies and now they have the study to prove it. So when you're in front, if you enjoy, if you latch onto this type of emotional propaganda, again, I'm saying this, I'm not saying that that's what they did. It was an accident, it was, it was a misstep. But, the, but in some cases, there are some organizations and this is the thing, that, this is the slippery slope that I see some sportsmen or some, discuss, some conversations in the sportsman community starting to slip into where it is become, it's becoming a just pure emotional bullshit propaganda. And you go into these meetings like this and you start to use this as your evidence base on why your righteousness, standing on the pedestal of the, of the North American model of wildlife conservation, you just get your feet, you, you, you're just cut off at the knees. Because the activists, you don't, again, you don't have to like them, you don't have to respect them, you don't have to listen to them, but you damn well better not think that they're stupid. Because most of the time, they are not stupid. This is their life. Now, you can have your your Joe, you know, soccer mom from, you know, King Supers or wherever, your, you know, Aldi's or wherever, you know, that, that signs a petition. She's like, I like this or, or some guy or whatever. But when we're talking about these national organizations and the people that represent them, the people that they have lobbyists and they have attorneys, these are not stupid lobbyists. These are not stupid attorneys. These are pretty smart people that have made their life's career out of this. Do you think for a second they're not going to have, in many cases, they are going to be sharper than you. They're going to be more well-versed in fact than you. Now, 
They can manipulate their versions of facts. They will take studies like this. They will manip- They will do all these things. I'm not saying that they're righteous in what they do, but they're good at what they do. You come at this with this type of, of this type of information and you try to use this as your defense, you're done. They will discredit you publicly, viciously, and that's the problem. Once your credibility has been tarnished, it is next to impossible to get it back. So this is why I am so vehemently against this type of stuff because it can inadvertently set the sportsman community up for failure. Now, let's take this a step further because I want to address that first portion of the original post that says animal activists may claim that, you know, you know, predators on the landscape can help slow CWD, but the general thought process after that is <laughs> that's a bunch of bullshit. That's just stupid. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Is it? Because if we're going to talk about research, okay, let's talk about research, shall we? How about this one published 11, January 11th, 2022 in nature, this time in communications biology, This one is in uh, volume five, article number 15. Okay, again, published in 2022. Apparent stability masks underlying change in a mule deer herd with unmanaged chronic wasting disease. Huh, here we go. Here's an actual study that's talking about chronic wasting disease. What is this about, you ask? Well, who are the authors? Well, there's a bunch of people in there. I know some of these names in here, but one of them is Michael Miller. Mike Miller in Colorado is one of the leading uh, veterinary uh, medical doctors that deals with wildlife uh, veterinary medicine. When you're doing a lot of a lot of the bighorn sheep stuff, mule deer, if there's any sort of study going on in Colorado where they need uh, a veterinary a vet, Mike Miller is it's either Mike himself or one of the people under him. Mike is legit, man. He's he's one of the best in the, in the nation, okay? So when when I sit there and say Mike Miller's involved in this study, I pay attention because it's got some it's got some teeth to it, all right? This was published January 2022. Now remember that the wolf issue was several years ago, all right? Let's go back to what some people have been talking about with this COVID stuff and censorship of free speech, where we were being warned that, you know, we've got to be careful of misinformation and disinformation and malinformation, right? They went after Joe Rogan because he was, he was a purveyor of misinformation and disinformation and malinformation, right? But when it all came out to it, came down to it is no, the information that was being shared two years ago and one year ago and a few months ago is the exact same information that now, well, it's politically expedient or it's politically acceptable or it's socially acceptable to accept that dialogue now. Not disprove it. It's, well, now it's acceptable by the powers that be that we can hear this type of information. Before, no, it was was dangerous. It was misinformation, disinformation, malinformation, right? right? 
Well, a couple years ago, when the activists said predators can help slow the spread of disease, sportsmen jumped all over and were like, you're full of shit. Really? What do we got here? What was what 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 is what is what is what is this what does this study say? Let's go to let's go to the abstract. Let's start there. The contagious prion disease, chronic wasting disease, CWD, infects mule deer. What is that doesn't matter. Scientific name. And related species. Unchecked epidemics raise ecological, socioeconomic, and public health concerns. Okay, so uh, unchecked chronic wasting disease. Raises ecological, okay, chronic wasting disease travels across the landscape. It's it's fatal to those that, that contract it, and it can absolutely alter uh, population dynamics and the ability of a population to persist on the landscape if the pre- prevalence of CWD, CWD increases beyond about 50%. Um, well, hell, 30 to 40, but especially after 50% prevalence, okay? So it absolutely has ecological significance. Socioeconomic. Social, economic, what, look at hunting. How much money is in, wrapped up in mule deer, elk, moose hunting? Just let's just say Colorado where this study was done, okay? How much money is wrapped up in that? And if we have unchecked chronic wasting disease rampant across the landscape, what are the losses on hunting opportunity and the money and the social impact that surrounds all of that, okay? So that's that socioeconomic. And then public health concerns. Again, CDC is recommending that if you do harvest an animal, you send it in for testing, it comes back as positive. The, the formal recommendation is that you do not eat the meat. There's no evidence at this point. Now, I'm not going to say no evidence, but the, <clears throat> in effect, there's little to no evidence that consuming CWD positive animal meat properly handled, properly handled meat transmits over to CWD in humans. Okay. That has not been shown yet. All right. But the caution is if you don't want to eat it, don't eat it. All right. To which the agencies have said, if your animal comes back as CWD positive, you can throw the entire carcass away. You're not guilty of um, wanton waste. Right. So, Public health concerns. Prion infection shortens a deer's lifespan, and when prevalence becomes sufficiently high, CWD can affect her dynamics, which I just said. Understanding population responses over time is key to forecasting long-term impacts. Here, we describe unexpected stability in prevalence and abundance in mule deer herd where CWD has been left unmanaged. High apparent prevalence, about 30%, since at least 2005, likely drove observed changes in the proportion and age distribution of wild type, sorry, my voice, wild type native prion protein. Okay, so in fair, just warning, this study starts getting into the, the genetic marker and makeup of the prion disease and the genetic predisposition predilections of mule deer and how so it gets technical okay it get, gets freaking technical so i'm gonna i'm gonna kind of gloss over some of the genetic technicality stuff because it, it it doesn't matter for our discussion high parent changes in predation by mountain lions may be helping keep cwd in check huh 
the frickin' hell did you say? A very credible biologist who is friendly-ish. I mean, it's not like he hates hunting, okay? This is a credible biologist. What the hell did you say? Predation by mountain lions may be helping keep CWD in check. Uh, that kind of sounds similar. Maybe not identical, but doesn't that sound similar to what the animal activists said? That the sportsman community poo-pooed? Dismissed? Let's get into this here. Despite stable appearances, prion disease, nonetheless, impairs of adult survival, blah, 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 blah. Uh, limiting, blah, 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 blah. Okay. So what the hell are we talking about here? So it goes, it goes down through it. Contagious prion disease talks about CWD, talks about what happens if it's left unchecked. Uh, it's, again, it gives a background on all chronic waste and disease and all that, blah, 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 blah. So despite their explosive reputation, CWD epidemics and natural systems are slow to develop, unfolding over several decades in the wild. This insidious, this is, this insidious dynamics combined with relatively recent emergence or detection and lack of combined with relative recent emergence or detection. So if it just shows up in a new area, you're not going to see the effects of it for several years. And then the lack of sustained interest and resources from both the sportsman community. There's a lot of sportsmen that, that either still don't believe in CWD or just don't, don't think it's important. They don't think it's significant. It's not a big deal. Okay. Dismissed by the, by the sportsman community. And then from a funding standpoint, legislatures and, you know, whether we're talking a national level, local level, level, there's been a, a, a decrease in the amount of people that really want to focus on it because they're like, nah, well, we don't care. So there's no, there's not as much funding uh, as what might be nice to have trying to figure out how to combat this this damn disease, okay? So, um, have limited opportunities and observe long-term trends. To this end, we revisited. So, people in Colorado, you know this. We revisited the Table Mesa mule deer herd in southwest Boulder, Colorado, USA, where it was last studied CWD in 2005 to 2009. We gathered contemporary data, new new data on this herd, for comparison from those from more than a decade earlier, assessing the interim trends in disease prevalence, herd demography, and relative abundance of native prion protein genotype variants, okay, the, the prion variants. Our analysis revealed unexpected stability in CWD prevalence and deer abundance despite changes in the proportion and age distribution of wild-type PRNP gene homozygotes likely driven by disease, blah, 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 as well as evidence that predation by mountain lions may be helping keep CWD in check at Table Mesa. Results goes down through it, and, and you can read this. I guess you have to be a member, but it starts going through, and of course, all the statistical stuff, analysis, blah, 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 blah. On the surface, deer abundance and demography also appeared surprisingly unchanged considering the amount of dura apparent duration and sustained high CWD incidence. Mark recites surveys. It's a, it's a way of, uh, it's a, uh, this is how you model ungulate populations. Mark Resite is one of them, and, and it's very robust statistically. That's why animal activists have a lot harder time criticizing agencies for modeling uh, and setting harvest numbers for ungulates because the, the, the models are very robust and proven over time. This is one of them, Mark Resite, okay? Um, Surveys done in December 2018 estimated a total deer abundance at 269 individuals. Confidence in 95% confidence in it doesn't matter. This is all the numbers. 
Despite the absence of sport hunting in this area, none of the 46 males we captured exceeded five and a half years of age. CWD generally manifests itself in a critical, uh, a clinical state in those older age class areas. So you have a lot of younger age class animals, but the disease has not progressed enough to actually kill them or cause some of the animals to maybe not fire on all cylinders where they make themselves vulnerable to predation. I'll get to what I'm doing here in in Northwest Kansas in a second. So they didn't exceed five and a half years of age. They were, they were gone from the, from the landscape. As with overall abundance, mean ages, blah, 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 mean ages were similar. So basically all the, the mule deer demographics were very similar from 2005 to 2009 to recently. Okay. Now, this is where the, the rest of this, the article, we start getting into the genotypes and geno. I mean, we're talking genetic studies here and, and splitting hairs on the, the, the prion disease itself and how that uh, is mutate, you know, changing over time in the deer. So let's, let's not, that's 12 steps over my head. But here's a section, lions and prions and deer. As expected, prion infection lowered deer survival just as it had in our earlier study. All 10 CWD positive deer monitored via telemetry during the 2018 to 2020 years died within 415 days after capture. In contrast, only seven, which ended up being 17% of the 41 test negative deer. So the deer that tested negative for CWD with telemetry died during that same time. Mountain lion predation accounted for at least 10 of the 21 mortalities among the 51 telemetry monitored deer during the 2018 to 2020 time period. With annual mortality attributed to mountain lion predation running about 0.36 among affected deer versus about 0.08 among apparently uninfected deer. 0.36 among infected deer. 0.08 among apparently uninfected deer. Infected deer showed relatively high vulnerability to predation, similar to that observed previously at Table Mesa. Only three of the 10 infected deer clearly succumbed to clinical CWD. Clinical CWD is when they they're emaciated. They're you can see they're just their skin and bones. Their head is hanging down. Their ears are drooped. They're sl- they're they're drooling. They've got snot coming out of their nose. They might probably be standing somewhere near water or a snow patch, and they're just I mean you can literally walk up to them and just push them over. They, they're they're out of it. Okay, that's at that clinical stage, and death is coming very quickly if a predator doesn't pull them down in the, in the meantime. Okay. So only three of the 10 infected deer clearly succumbed to clinical CWD beyond the losses to predation and disease. Vis- vehicle collision accounted for three deaths for five. The cause of death cannot be determined with certain certainty continues. Mountain lions have been shown to selectively prey upon CWD infected mule deer cited. There's a citation here of another study that, that showed the same thing and infected deer appear relatively vulnerable to predation. Here's two more citations of other studies that show this yet high CWD prevalence has persisted at table Mesa for over a decade, despite substantial mountain lion predation on the surface. This observation may seem to undermine the notion that selective removal can facilitate disease suppression where you just totally reduce the population and, and try to, this is what most 
uh, sportsmen get fired up about when you hear state agencies talk about doing chronic wasting disease mitigation efforts where they want to go in and abs- just greatly reduce the deer density or elk density or, or moose density in a particular area just to kind of suppress the likelihood of transmission of excuse me those prions okay however such effects depend on the amount of amount and timing of predatory rem- removal relative to pathogen transmission and death resulting from infection itself. Several more citations of studies that show the same thing. Mountain lions killed at least 18 of the 53 CWD infected, and this is a genetic marker, the 225SS deer monitored during our two field studies at Table Mesa. The survival distribution of 26 infected deer dying in end-stage CWD differed from that of infected deer killed by mountain lions. Again, here's the, here's the test that they did to prove that. It was significant. Median survival was 215 days after capture among infected deer killed by mountain lions versus 343 days for those succumbing to clinical disease, which means the mountain lions were pulling those mule deer down, what, a hundred and some, almost, let's just say four to five months earlier than the animals that were dying of the clinical CWD. And they, there's curves and mart and uh, you know charts. The observed pattern seems contis- consistent with modest selective pre- pressure expected from ambush predator. Early onset of prion shedding by infected mule deer, blah blah blah. Citations likely affords ample time for shedding to occur before infected animals become vu- vulnerable to predation. Okay, now here's where Chris Rowe comes in and what I've been doing and what my hypothesis, my theory was for our coyote management in our area. We are in a CWD area and my thought was, I guess I'll hold up. I'll tell you what I'm doing for my coyote management and my deer, what we're doing out here. Okay, but here's the thing. Let me keep reading. Uh, blah, 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 because blah, blah, blah. so likely for us ample time of shedding to when you hear people talk about prion shedding that means the animal that is infected with a prion is pooping urinating marking things with saliva marking things with preorbital glands and secretions around the face so all that mucous membrane your you know feces that type of stuff that contains prions and the longer an animal is on the, the if as soon as an animal becomes infected it will start to build up the amount of, of those misshapen proteins in the body and it will start to shed. It'll start to excrete those prions into the landscape through feces and, and you know, uh, saliva and, you know, mucous membranes, stuff, their, their preorbital glands, all that type of stuff, okay? So they're shedding that stuff. They're not clinically, they're, they're not dying. They're not dead yet, okay? They're living with the disease. This is no different than what you hear about people with COVID. You know, you're walking around, oh, you're asymptomatic. And, and you're, you're, you, can, you can, you know, kill grandma because you're, you're asymptomatic, okay? Y- yeah, y- you might be asymptomatic right now, but you can transmit the disease. This is what is going on with CWD. A deer can be walking around the landscape and be shedding those prions into the environment where other deer can, or elk or whatever, can pick those prions up and become infected themselves, okay? This outcome aligns with our field data with modeling illustrating the extent of selective pressure needed to lower CWD incidence. Again, the the suppression of the 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 the, the need or the belief that if you suppress the population numbers, 
greatly in an area. You will decrease the amount of shedding of prions in the landscape. You will decrease the likelihood of another deer stumbling upon that pile of feces that has prions in it and then putting their nose in it or licking it or whatever and, and you know, ingesting those prions and then, you know, having cross-contamination, okay? If there's just not as much deer on the landscape, you're not going to be shedding as many prions and you're not going to have that cross-contamination as much, okay? Common sense. Human, However, human intolerance imposes bounds on mountain lion budgets because we, we can't have mountain lions everywhere. It, people don't want that. That may limit the, the may limit the potential impacts of predation on CWD incidents at Table Mason and elsewhere. When of sufficient magnitude, sport hunting could implement natural predation by removing a larger larger proportion of infected population. Again, this is making an argument that using hunters, and then other states have said, okay, we're going to use hunters, and if the hunters can't achieve that level of population suppression, we'll go in and use sharpshooters or whatever, and then we'll reduce it more. Again, this is highly controversial, and this is why sportsmen get so fired up in up in arms about some of these activities because you're talking about going in and taking your population and driving it down 50, 75, 90%. All right. So anyway, it's making the case that, okay, removing the animals can be of a benefit. It's absence from table Mesa. Okay. But there is no hunting on table Mesa. Okay. So hunting from, from humans is not occurring up there. They're not removing animals off the landscape. The only thing that's pretty much removing animals on the landscape of table Mesa is the mountain lion. Okay, so it's absolutely. Nonetheless, predation by mountain lions seems to likely have caught. Excuse me, seems likely to have influenced epidemic dynamics at the changes in in CWD at Table Mesa to some extent, and could have helped stabilize apparent prevalence in 2005. Conclusions. Reassessing the Table Mesa herd after more than a decade revealed unexpected superficially stability, superficial stability in apparent CWD prevalence and deer abundance in the time since our original study ended. Some combination of predation by mountain lions and perhaps subtle genetic shifting in the mule deer host or unidentified environmental factors may have contributed to the net absence of measurable change. Normally in a, in a uh, in, in, I've stopped reading. Normally, if you watch how uh, CWD, you know, moves across the landscape, it just steadily marches in an increasing prevalence on the landscape. You start with 10% of your population and pretty soon, a few years later, you're going to be at 20%, which ends up being 30%, which ends up being 40%, which ends up being 50%. And then once you start getting, if I remember correctly, once you hit that about 50% mark, it's difficult to maintain your deer herd. Okay. So it just marches forward in the absence of some intervening management mechanism to slow the, the, the interplay between diseased animals, prions and unaffected animals. Okay. Does that make sense? Uh, despite the appearance of stability, the table Mesa deer herm seems far from healthy. Okay. The high disease incident appears to be truncated age distribution of the otherwise dominant wild type individuals. Moreover, low adult survival sustained for over a decade likely impairs the resilience of this herd and limits the potential for growth despite an abundance of available habitat and relatively mild winter conditions. Okay. So they've got great habitat. They've got the deer have great habitat. They've got a lot of it. And we've had mild winter conditions to where we're not having any of this, you know, winter mortality. So the deer should be growing that the population of deer should be increasing on the landscape, but it's not, it's generally stable. 
in the face of CWD and mountain lions. But again, from this study, they're showing that the prevalence of CWD seems to be right about the same level. It hasn't continued to march upward like it does in other areas. <clears throat> Periodic reassessment of this and other infected cervid herds will inform on long-term implication of CW outbreaks and, and help better frame policy choices surrounding uh, intervention measures uh, or intervention alternatives. And then it goes through how they, you know, this one, it goes deeper into the genetic stuff and blah, 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 blah. So bottom line, here's a study by credible researchers showing that mountain lion predation actually is kind of helping. It seems there, there's strong evidence to show in this population that mountain lion predation is actually helping hold CWD prevalence to about that 30% rate. It's not allowing it to increase. So go ahead and tell me where the, uh, the, uh, activists were full of shit. Now, we can have a discussion about what the activists were actually saying. They were talking about wolves. Okay, wolves are not mountain lions. 100% correct. And mule deer do have a higher incident of CWD than elk do, generally speaking. And moose have a higher prevalence rate of CWD than elk do, generally speaking, or transmissibility or whatever. So you can make an argument that, okay, wolves are different and wolves are probably going to prey on elk. Now, we know what wolves are going to do with moose if you get into areas of moose. That's been well-documented already. So in this case, uh, we can have a discussion about what wolves will do with elk and the likelihood of their interaction with CWD and, and how they affect CWD prevalence in an elk herd, we might have a discussion. And we can have a discussion on, you know, prions maybe traveling through the digestive tract of a wolf and coming out in their feces. But I would also argue how many elk are going to stick their nose into a pile of wolf feces. Okay? So there, there, there's, there's, some, there's a legit debate discussion here on what we're talking about with wolf interaction, CWD shedding in wolf eating, you know, infected elk or whatever, versus what wolves would do with a mule deer, okay, and predation on mule deer, versus what they might do with moose. Because the way moose are in the predation on moose by wolves, I think an argument can be made that maybe we look at something similar to what's going on at Table Mesa between mountain lions and mule deer as wolves with moose. I don't know, but there's a damn freaking credible discussion there. They're not full of shit. The activists are not full of shit. They may be overplaying their hand. They may be over uh, uh, simplifying and glorifying this dynamic, but they're not full of shit. Okay. Because here's at least one study right now that says, mm, there's some credibility to it. Okay, let's go to what we saw with the Southeast region. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me step it, let me take it step by step, okay? If you know how chronic wasting, wasting disease, if you're honest about how chronic wasting disease is spread from animal to animal, you know that the more animals you have in a, in a more defined space, the more likely you're going to have cross-contamination, you're going to have infection rates go up. Now, here's where I, for what we're doing in Northwest Kansas, decided to make a policy for us, for our management stand, a policy decision that we were not going to go out, do, go out and do some large-scale, massive coyote predation uh, management intervention. We're not going to go out there and waylay the piss out of coyotes. Why? 
We know that we are in an area that has chronic wasting disease. We know that west of us, the, the prevalence of chronic wasting disease is just steadily increasing. And it may be the same in our area as well. But what I also know is that chronic wasting disease is a long, slow process, and it usually takes out our older age class animals. However, just because it kills a clinical uh, uh, animal, okay, where they're emaciated, head hanging down, okay, like I said before, it kills them. But at some point prior, this was literally before I started this management protocol eight years ago because I was using my brain and using the available data from chronic wasting disease studies and how predators take down prey in the field. Okay. Eight years ago, I came up with this idea for our area here. My thought was, at okay, so you, you have a young animal get exposed to chronic wasting disease. It becomes infected. It's going to take multiple years for that chronic wasting disease to develop into that animal to where it kills that animal. However, before that happens, at some point, like was shown in the table mesa thing, that animal is going to start acting squirrely. It's not going to be firing on all cylinders. It's going to be a little bit more slow to react. It's not going to be paying attention as much. It's going to wander out into dangerous areas a little bit more often, and it's going to leave those dangerous areas a little slower. It's going to start becoming a little bit more vulnerable to predation. The study that Mike just did right there just says that they, and there's multiple studies to back it up with mountain lions, that CWD infected animals are more likely to be pulled down by predators. Of course they are because everybody knows, and this is what the animal activists hang on that, oh, predators go after the sick and the weak. Now, sportsmen have since the wolf issue back in whenever have, I'm sorry, in many cases bastardize that. They're like, oh, bullshit. They'll go after everything. Blah, blah. Yes, they will. But they will go after the sick and weak if they have the preference. If you have one that can't run and react as fast, guess which one as a predator I'm going to go after? I'm going to go after the sick one. Now, to the sports, that goes to the activist's claim. If there's a sick or old animal on the landscape that doesn't run as fast, is not paying attention, can't process danger as effectively, that is the animal that's going to get targeted first. And if you, as a sportsman, if you want to call bullshit on that, I'm going to turn around and call bullshit on you and tell you, you just go ahead. You go ahead and tell me you go out pronghorn hunting and you accidentally shank a shot and you inadvertently gut shoot a pronghorn and it runs into the rest of the herd. I can't tell you the number of times where that shot is taken. The whole herd runs off and all of a sudden out of nowhere, here comes a coyote and it's on it. It's like, you're wounded. I've got you. How the hell did the animal, how did that coyote even, they can sense, they can see the animal's gait. They can see the and feel and hear. I don't know the mechanism by which those, I, those coyotes know those injured animals are on the landscape. But I can tell you from our whitetail stuff, I can tell you from the pronghorn stuff, the management I used to do, the hunt program management I used to do there, and other places across the United States where you could show, no, absolutely, if there is a wounded or sick animal on the landscape, those predators will absolutely target that animal immediately, okay? At the very least, at a higher percentage rate than you're going to go after healthy animals. 
Now, that does not mean, sportsmen, that once they're done with that, they're not going to go after healthy animals because darn well they will. Okay? But just saying to the animal activist, you're full of shit. No, they're not. Okay? No, they're not. So my thought process for the coyotes was here, okay, at some point, it may be three years of age, a buck especially, because bucks have more high prevalence than does usually do just because their nature and their behavior of, of smelling and marking and licking and everything else, okay, cross-contamination of one another with, with prions. At maybe three years of age, or as it approaches four years of age, it's sometime before that clinical stage, that animal's going to act squirrely. The animal's infected. The animal is shedding prions across the landscape. That animal's marking licking branches and, and rubbing on trees and, and defecating and urinating and doing and, and putting his nose on other animals. Okay, that animal is asymptomatic or mildly, at this point, mildly symptomatic of CWD. It's spreading the CWD on the landscape, but now it's behaving just a little bit different on the landscape than all the other deer. The coyotes out here know that. Yank that sucker down. Get Just kill it. I can't go out there year-round and shoot every deer that I think is CWD positive. That's not how it works. Number one. Number two, I can't detect that mild level of CWD exposure that's starting to cause that behavioral shift in those deer. Coyotes can't. And so my thought process was if we... I can't do any... The state of Kansas is not doing a damn thing... Sorry, my bias and my opinion at the time, at right this juncture here, the state of Kansas has its head in the sand on what CWD is doing to the state, and I think the state is is negligent in doing something. I wish they would do something, at least get rid of baiting and feeding and all. I, I don't care. Whatever we can. That's a different discussion for a different time. Regardless, the state isn't doing anything for CWD. I can't, as a hunter, run enough hunts to do anything for CWD. So what do we have on the landscape? We have coyotes. Okay, then let's let the coyotes do their thing. Let's let the packs develop. Let's let the packs go in there and hunt the ever-living piss out of our deer population and hope that they're predisposed to taking out the CWD animals at a higher rate than the healthy animals. It makes freaking sense, people. I don't, this is, I'm not an animal activist. I'm not an animal rightsist. I'm not an anti-hunter. I'm a biologist, manager, hunter. Sportsman's advocate, I want to see hunting on the landscape. Guess what? I have tools. And the only tools I have at, the, at this it, for this particular thing at this particular time is using predators on the landscape. It's not a bullshit idea. It may not pertain to wolves and elk in Colorado, but it damn well has some cross-pollination on other things. Calling bullshit where bullshit doesn't exist just decreases your credibility on the on the public stage when someone can come back and point to this stuff and make you look like a dumbass. Because we just got done with the Southeast Region uh, Deer Study Group 2022 last week of the uh, the meetings. One of the things in there was haha a study on deer behavior. In a, in a predator exclosure versus an area where deer were uh, had the pressures of predation, that quote-unquote landscape of fear, where the deer were living with coyote predation. On one population, they, they, they could jump into an exclosure that kept almost all the predators out, 
and they were safe from predation. In another area, they were exposed to predation. The researchers looked at both populations to see what the behavioral, it, was there a difference in behavior of those animals in and out of that exclosure, predatory exclosure. What did they find? They found that inside the, preda the predatory exclosure, where there was little to no predation, bucks and does were using the same areas at the same time. They were mixing at a higher rate than the animals that were outside dealing with predation, where they found that bucks were separating themselves largely more from does. And if they were using the same areas that does were, they were using it at a different time period during the day, the 24-hour cycle. What does that mean? In the fit Again, remember, bucks usually have a higher prevalency of CWD simply because of the nature of their behavior, swapping mucus and saliva. If you are taking in what this showed, the evidence of this study showed that in the absence of predation, those bucks tended to overlap the same areas and have, be in more co close contact with doe groups, which means those bucks could be artificially inflating the prevalence and the exposure of CWD in those areas where there was little to no predation versus where there was predation, the bucks were separating themselves from does, which means the bucks might have had a higher pro, uh, pro, uh, prevalency of CWD, but they weren't spending that much time in, other than the rut. Obviously, the rut, that's, no, we're talking about the off-season, quote-unquote, non-rut periods. They were using different areas, and when they were using different areas, they were using the areas at different times. Now, granted, feces are going are gonna to shed, absolutely, but they're not nose-to-nose. They're, they're not overlapping behavior. So in that study, it shows right there that predation could have a benefit on the landscape of helping keep bucks and does a little bit more apart, which can help reduce the likelihood of transmission from bucks to doe groups. Uh, I don't care if you don't like what the activists said. I don't give a shit whether you respect the activists, whether you want to listen to them, or you want to believe them or what, I don't care. But when research comes back and gives their argument a sense of, uh, at least an ounce of plausibility, if not flat out proves it, all I can say is it would behoove the sportsman community to actually get their shit straight, to follow what the science actually says, and in the face of animal activists and anti-hunters coming to the table and say, here's this research that proves our point, rather than going out and saying, you're full of shit, nah, this is not, well, you know, the North American model of wildlife conservation says, you know, you know our righteous, you know, our, this is our... How about you actually talk about the science? And sometimes if they have a valid point, you might want to concede the valid point. And then if they have a valid point, but it's not quite associated to the topic at hand, if they're, if they're over, if they're over embellishing the importance of what they're saying, don't, don't get rid of, don't try to, to trash the, the fundamental basis. Just go ahead and attack the over embellishment say, okay, we know the study you're talking about. We hear you. Yes, this is true here, 
but we need to raise a correction on what you're saying here because this, no, this part, the basis, yes, that's fundamental, but it's different, it's wrong, it's not applicable, it's blah, 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 blah. Correct it there. Why? Because when we are dealing with public, there's numerous studies from Colorado and across the United States and, and other places from uh, human dynamics and everything else. When it comes down to a, 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 the average person that doesn't have a clue in the world about a debate, about a topic, about a controversy, on one side you have Hunter saying X, Y, and Z, and on the other side you have animal activists saying A, B, and C. And these two animal activists and hunters are going back and forth, back and forth, arguing all this emotion, blah, 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 throwing statistics and logic and blah, blah, blah. blah. And the average person is sitting in the, that has no clue what's going on. They're going, I don't freaking hell. What, what are you guys, what are you guys talking? I don't know what you're talking about. What do they do? They are going to subconsciously latch on to the most reasonable person in the room. The most, re- the most reasoned argument in the room. If that happens to come because the activists are making a better case, you're shit out of luck because it doesn't matter. They might, the non-consumptive user may not give two rips about, and and this is going to, this is going to come up. I'm going to have a conversation about this later on about dynamics of, of what happened in the bear, uh, the, the bear ballot initiative back in the nineties in Colorado. This is going to be a different conversation later on. When you look at why people voted the way they did, and I can show you this from controversial wildlife species conservation and management along the front range of Colorado in you know some of these open spaces, open spaces and, and the and communities, m- greater than 80%. I know that one uh, there was one study, I think it was 85%, then was there was another study that 87%, but the vast majority of the 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 the, the, the clueless non-consumptive user is just going to go with the one that makes the most reasoned argument. Who seems like the most reasonable in the room? The most most empathetic, the most understanding, the, the person that, that can relate and, 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 and have dynamic feedback, is listening, is, is considering, and, and is making a, a reasoned argument within the framework of what is being discussed. If animal, if if the animal activists are the ones doing that, the the general public is going to go their way, and if sportsmen just simply rest on emotionalism and and trying to just to argue every single thing against the activist, oftentimes you're the you you're the one that's going to come out sounding ridiculous, that is not reasonable in this situation. So let me let me use that to segue to this next topic because this is one that I wanted to talk about uh, before. So I know this is going to be a long podcast, but it is what it is. I, it, it's fine. It, it, this is going to be a long one, but it's worth it. I think I, it, I it's long. It is what it is. So somebody sent this one to me. Okay, this is where I so I've I've, I've tackled myself and my my failures. Okay, my my weaknesses. I've tackled organizations putting science or, or claiming that they're putting science out there and misrepresenting things, whether willfully or accidentally, okay? And I'm segueing into sportsmen trying to argue against activists and fighting against activists and, and not considering what the activists are actually saying, okay? So somebody sent me this the other week. 
Cash for Coyotes hunting contest deemed legal, but animal rights groups say Ontario ignoring its own laws. There is a coyote hunting contest going on in the province of Ontario, Canada. Yeah, that's a province, right? Um, so here's what's going on. Let me, here's what I'm going to do. Let me read. Let me read the article, and then let's 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 compare a news article, and then let's compare animal activists what they say, and let's dive into some things here, okay? Because this is what happened. So somebody sent this to me. It was like, look at this bullshit. Here we are, animal activists are. are uh, this is another attack. Okay. Rather than taking that sensationalized message, there's nothing wrong. I, there's nothing wrong with with someone sending. Okay, but let's look at it a minute. I'm not going to take the surface. Let's let's just like what I, we did with the the research here a minute ago. Let's let's dive into this. Okay. So, uh, this is February 4th. This, this newspaper article or, uh, yeah, well it's, what is it? Yeah. Toronto star. I just chose this one. Okay. Uh, February 4th, 2022, four minute read. It says an annual coyote hunting contest hosted by hunting outfitter in Belleville, Ontario is drawing the ire of animal activists, animal rights activists who say the contest, which awards cash prizes, is a clear violation of provincial conservation laws banning the incentivization or in oh the incentivized killing of animals. Hmm. But Ontario's Minister of Northern Development, Mines, Natural Resources and Forestry, which governs hunting hunting in the province, says the contest run by Chesser's Outdoor Store is legal. <clears throat> okay. Quote Coyote populations are stable and secure across Ontario, and there are no sustainability concerns with the province's coyote population, end quote, the ministry said in an unattributed statement in response to the questions for the story. Wait, what? Right now, hopefully some of you pinged off a little light bulb, the exact same thing that happened to me. So the first paragraph says, Drawing the ire of animal activists who say the contest, which awards cash prizes, is a clear violation of provincial conservation laws banning the incentivized killing of animals. And the response by Ontario fish and game officials, coyote populations are stable and secure across Ontario and there are no sustainability concerns with the province's coyote population. Uh, that's not their argument. Let's keep what? Okay, fine. Then let's just keep. So right there, bing, my head, my, I'm like, uh, wait a minute. Something's, something's not right here. So keep reading. Those who oppose the contest say the ministry isn't enforcing its own laws. They point to section 11 of the Fish and Wildlife Conservation Act, which says that unless authorized by the minister, A person shall not hunt or induce another person to hunt for, quote, gain or the expectation of gain, end quote. Chessers, which has been running the contest every February since at least 2018, offers $2,500 in cash and merchandise prizes to the hunters who kill the heaviest coyotes. 
quote, if they're going to reward someone for killing wildlife, that very clearly seems to be applicable under Section 11, end quote, says Michael Howey, spokesman for the Fur Bearers, an environmental charity. Howey said the ministry needs to better explain why it's not enforcing Section 11. Quote, if they're not willing to enforce a clear law, I think there's a whole lot of other questions that are going to come up, end quote. The ministry said it has reviewed, quote, reviewed the matter and no charges have been laid. It did not respond to a follow-up question asking to clarify how offering cash prizes would not qualify as inducing another person to hunt for, quote, gain, which is prohibited under the act. Neither Minister Greg Rickford nor any other ministry representative was made available for an interview. In its statement, the ministry said anyone hunting coyotes is required to have a small game license and follow all applicable hunting rules and regulations. Okay. Hold on. I'll keep reading. You probably picked up on that. Okay. So I'm hoping you did. So let me just read this paragraph and I'll, t- I'll tell you what popped out to me. I'm starting a paragraph over. In its statement, the ministry said anyone hunting coyotes is required to have a small game license and follow all applicable hunting rules and regulations. In much of the province, wolves and coyotes can be hunted year-round with no limit. Now, parentheses. There are limits in certain parts of the province, province, and it is generally illegal to hunt coyotes and wolves in and around provincial parks. So it's just a qualification that you can't hunt coyotes and wolves all over the place. But what, what, but what struck me was the ministry said anyone hunting coyotes is required to have a small game license and follow all applicable hunting rules and regulations. The activists are claiming they are violating section 11 of the, the, of the fish and, is it fish and wildlife, fish and wildlife conservation act. Okay. So Let's keep, okay. So if they're supposed to follow the law and the law says you can't hunt for incentive, you know, gain or in, incentivize gain. Okay. I'm starting to see where the animal activists might have a case. And I'm, I at yet I'm, I'm not seeing where the ministry or the hunting public here is rebutting their argument saying, no, it, it's, it's not. So far, the ministry is saying you have to follow all rules and regulations, and it's saying, well, coyote numbers are stable. It's not a big deal. That's not the issue. So right now, as I look at the scorecard, plus one for animal activists, zero for the ministry, zero for hunters right now. Okay, so Bill Chesser, owner of Chesser's, did not respond to multiple interview requests. Now we're going to get to probably why that is. In a Facebook post announcing this year's hunting contest, he referenced opposition to the contest from the, quote, anti-hunting community and unspecified damage to store property that occurred last year. Quote, we chose not to lay charges or seek compensation, he wrote. My view from last year has changed. Apparently last year they had a whole bunch of stuff happen. You know, retribution from the animal activist community and anti-hunters. My view from last year has changed after multitude of threats of death, bodily harm, arson, and other forms of property damage which simply are not warranted. 
These types of actions will not be tolerated this year in any capacity. This is a contest we have run for the hunting community for years and will continue to do so. End quote. Still no rebuttal to the actual claim that the animal activists have. Continuing, in previous years, this, okay, in previous years, the contest, this is good, okay? I'm sorry, sportsman, you better start getting smarter. Put your emotions freaking aside. In previous years, the contest also included a prize for most coyotes killed, but Chester wrote, or Cheshire wrote in Facebook, on Facebook, sorry, I'm sorry, start over again. In previous years, the contest also included a prize for most coyotes killed, but Cheshire wrote on Facebook last year that they had to exclude that prize after consulting with the ministry because it was determined to be, quote, promoting a bounty, which is also illegal under Section 11. So you're telling me they've already had a violation under Section 11 of the Fish and Wildlife Conservation Act that they had to address. Here they are back again offering prizes. The animal activists are coming back again saying, okay, you're still under violation under Section 11. And it's so far, at least in this newspaper, in this article, and this was one of the most comprehensive articles I I looked at, I haven't heard an argument against them other than no. Okay? A blog post on the website for the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters, uh, another, uh, just another organization up there. A blog post on the website for the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters defended the contest last year, saying coyote pup... (laughs) Come on, people. Uh, A blog post on the website of the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters defended the contest last year, saying... Coyote populations are, quote, extremely robust and that the contest merely offers prizes for something the hunters are already doing. That's not the argument. That's not the legal argument. What do you, what do you say? Come on. Quote, these contests are put largely as a promotion to simply try and attract existing hunters to their store, wrote Lori Tomley, a resource management specialist specialist with the Ontario Federation of, of Anglers and Hunters. Quote, it has much greater influence and value as a retail marketing strategy than it ever could. Come on, Lauren. Quote, it has much greater influence and value as a retail marketing strategy than it ever could on wildlife sustainability. I'm not hearing wildlife sustainability issues from the activists so far. I'm hearing it's a violation of law. Coyote sightings in Toronto have increased in recent years, even more so during the pandemic. The increase has been attributed in part to people feeding the animals, which is strongly discouraged by experts in the city's animal services department. So what do I get out of that? What did you get out of that? Coyote sightings in Toronto have increased in recent recent years, even more so during the pandemic. The increase has been attributed in part to people feeding the animals, which is strongly discouraged by experts in the city's animal services department. What do I hear from that? 
that the general population is starting to have an emotional attachment to coyotes in and around the urban environment. You don't feed those things that you hate, that you dislike, that you distrust, that you want less of. You feed those things that you have an emotional value for, an intrinsic value for, those things that you want to see more of, that you get an emotional feedback from. So we're, we're, what this is saying is that the increase, in part, is to people feeding the coyotes in recent years. So that tells me that the general populace might, in, in certain areas, in Toronto, which is one of the big voting blocks in that province, maybe there are people in there that are having an increase in their emotional value set towards coyotes. That may play into something here later on. In general, coyotes do not pose any danger to humans, but they can be a nuisance to farmers and occasionally have attacked people in urban areas. In November, Toronto police captured and killed a coyote that they said bitten two people in North Park Park or North York Park. Leslie Sampson, executive director of Coyote Watch Canada, a wildlife ag- advocacy group, said the contest is unethical and should be shut down. Now, here we go. Now, there's a value set. We finally get to a value set. This isn't about, quote, from Leslie, this isn't about folks going out and hunting ethically and sustainably, she said. This is incentivized and glorified killing an animal. Or this is incentivizing and glorifying killing an animal. So, she has a value. I, I, I'm, and I, I apologize, Leslie. I, I guess you could be a guy. I don't know. Oh no, she said. She said. She said. She, so it's a woman. Okay. So she's not saying. So she's saying. It's unethical, is what she said. So that's a value statement on her behalf. But she says this isn't about folks going out and hunting ethically and sustainably. So she's setting aside her value set. She's like, okay, I don't like it. But this isn't something that, that they claim that the sportsmen are claiming to be ethical and sustainable. This, on her part, and what they believe is incentivizing and glorifying killing of an animal. The, in, the glorifying part is not under Section 11 of the Fish and Wildlife Conservation Act, but the incentivizing to go out and kill, we're going to get to here in a second. Coyote Watch Canada and the Fur Bearers are encouraging individuals opposed to the contest to contact Rickford and their local MPP, I'm guessing a government official, and call on the government to, quote, put a stop to coyote killing contest in Ontario. They said more than 2,000 people have signed down. Ethical, here you go. Ethical questions aside, Sampson said, the, content, the contest is, quote, flagrant violation of the province's own laws and the ministry hasn't adequately explained why it's not enforcing section 11. So far, this seems to be a pretty darn good uh, newspaper article and I haven't heard an argument against the section, why this, why it's, why it's legal. Quote, this is about public trust and an expectation that our government enforce their own regulations. Okay. So that's the newspaper article. All right. So what are the activists actually saying? Let's jump over to Coyote Canada, Coyote Watch Canada, and let's look at what they say on their website. Animal Justice Fur Bear, the title is Ontario Government Sued for Coyote Killing Contest. So these guys have filed suit, a legal court case against the government. What did I just say? Ontario government 
sued for coyote killing contest. The activists aren't going after Cheshire's, the 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 sportsman, or the the at least I don't I don't see that. They're not going after the the sportsman or the uh, sporting good store or the hunters. They're they're going after the government. They're suing the government. Why? All right, let's find out. Animal Justice, the Fur Bearers, and Coyote Watch Canada are suing the Ontario government over its decision to allow coyote hunting contests to take place throughout the month of February. In a lawsuit filed in Superior Court on Thursday, the group say the contest violates the Fish and Wildlife Conservation Act, a provincial law governing hunting, trapping, and fishing practices. The law states that no person shall hunt, quote, for gain or the expectation of gain, quote, induce another person to hunt for gain, or pay or accept a bounty. To engage in any of these activities, an individual or company needs a written authorization from the Minister of Northern Development, Mines, Natural Resources, and Forestry, which does not appear to have occurred. Now hold the frickin' phone here. What? So you're telling me that incentivizing someone to kill an animal or taking a bounty is illegal under the Fish and Wildlife Conservation Act, but there's a clause in there that gets of an, gives it that makes it permissible. All they need is a is a, a all that to engage in those activities. All an individual or company company needs is a written authorization from the minister of northern the, the minister, which does not have appear to have occurred. The freaking hell are we talking about? Okay, so hold on a minute. So yet each year, continuing in the in the in the the article. Yet each year, Cheshire's Outdoor Store, a hunting shop located near located near Belleville, Belleville, Ontario, holds a coyote hunting contest. As part of this year's contest, the store will award thousands of dollars in cash and prizes to the contest participants for killing coyotes. Prizes will be awarded for the top five heaviest animals killed. There will also be a five will be five quote unquote hidden weight prizes. Awarded to those who kill coyotes with certain weights chosen in advance of the contest and kept secret until the contest closes. Quote, Animal Justice and a number of other groups have repeatedly urged the minister, not the not Chester's store, have ur- repeatedly urged the minister to comply with the Fish and Wildlife Conservation Act. But our efforts have been largely ignored, said Caitlin Mitchell, staff lawyer with animal justice quote because this cruel contest appears to be indirect contra- in indirect sorry not indirect appears to be in direct contravention of ontario's hunting and conservation law our groups have no option but to go to court <clears throat> no one is above the law and when governments violate laws designed to protect animals and ecosystems they must be held to account okay as a top predator, coyotes are vital to part of the ecosystem through Canada. These smart, playful, and highly social animals can lawfully hunted 365 days a year, in which much of sun, it, 365 days a year in much of southern Ontario, without any reporting requirements and without restrictions on the number of animals killed. Quote: As a keystone species, red flag right there. I don't know this ecosystem per se, but. Mm, you say coyotes are a keystone species. Every for animal activists, everything's a keystone species. Okay, I, this is a in my opinion, this is a value statement, a value embellishing, <clears throat> a value statement. As a keystone species, the eastern coyote is under the unabated threat of open season persecution in most of Ontario. <clears throat> blah 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 blah. Killing contests, fl- killing contests flout the sound science and ethical management, and disregards Section 11 of Fish and Wildlife Conservation Act. Wildlife, 
Fish and Wildlife Conservation Act. Wildlife is held in public trust for all Ontarians must be, and must not be targeted for cash prizes and incentivized killing for fun and gain. For more than a year, animal and environmental protection groups have advocated against the coyote killing contest, which promotes a senseless killing of coyotes for sport. Despite repeated requests from concerned groups and, and individuals, as well as the media, Neither the minister nor the store have indicated that written authorizations have been issued to the store and contest participants as required under Section 11 of the Act. So you're telling me, let me just continue. Over 8,000 submissions calling for, and for now, this, so one, the article said 2,000. This is saying 8,000. I don't know where the truth is, but they're saying 8,000. Maybe, who knows? Over 8,000 submissions calling for enforcement were sent to the ministry following this issue becoming public, said Mitchell Howey, spokesman for the Fur Bearers. Quote, these concerned members of the public and the media deserve transparency and expectations, explanations from their government. I don't know. I'm a constitutional conservative. It doesn't sound unreasonable to me. <clears throat> In addition to risks to coyotes, coyote hunting contests such as this also pose, risk to the great, uh, uh, pose a risk to Algonquin wolves a threatened species of wolf who are nearly identical in appearance to coyotes. There are no geographic boundaries on this contest, and the Algonquin wolf habitat includes areas in which coyotes are commonly hunted. Animal Justice, Fur Bearers, Coyote Watch Canada are represented by Caitlin Mitchell and Scott Timney of Animal Justice and Arden Bedos of Bedos Litigation. So let me get this straight. No. Let's not. Let, let, let's, 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 let's do due diligence. Hold on a minute. Click, 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 click. Ontario, search laws. Okay, let's go to the legal page of Ontario province. Okay, homepage, law, homepage slash laws slash Fish and Wildlife Conservation Act 1997, s.o.1997.c.41, chapter 41. There, there you are. Fish and Wildlife Conservation Act 1997, s.o.1997. <clears throat> Chapter 41. Bum, bum, bum. Go down. Concentrate contents. Part 1. Interpretation and application. So it's our interpretation and endangered species act. Farmed animals. Section 4 is animals for research. Boom. Part 2. Hunting, trapping, fishing, and regulated activities. General restrictions. Chapter 5. No hunting and trapping of certain species. Chapter 6. Requirement for hunting and trapping license. Okay. Chapter 7. Nets and nests and eggs. Eight, dan, uh, dens, beaver dams, etc. Nine, provincial parks, crown, game preserve. Chapter 10, trespassing. Chapter 11, hunting and trapping for gain. Clickety click. Chapter 11, hunting or trapping for gain. Chapter 11, one, except with authorization from the minister. So the minister can authorize this. With Except with authorization of the minister. A person shall not. A, hunt for hire, gain, or expectation of gain. B, hire, employ, or induce another person to hunt for gain. Three, C, trap for hire, gain, or expectation of gain. D, hire, employ, or induce another person to trap for gain. Or E, pay or accept a bounty. Okay. 
goes on to say it excludes guides and black bear hunting services that that this doesn't apply trappers this doesn't apply if you're doing it for, you know legally under trapping for bear animals blah, blah blah under the authority to trap same clauses traps or people that hire a trapping and but this so it's not about trapping you know illegal possession okay and then then um yeah it goes just to chapter 12 which is illegally camp killed wildlife in possession 13 obstruction of hunting and trapping and fishing blah blah, blah. so it moves on so It sounds like if you're if you're if you're incentivizing someone to go out and you're going to give them money and prizes and it, that that sounds like you could be incentivizing someone to go hunt for gain. So it's from a just a pure legal standpoint. I'm sorry, I don't I don't have to like the animal activist groups. I don't have to respect the animal activist groups. I don't have to value what their animal activist groups want to do. But it sounds like they have an actual standing in court under the law based on what this law say, states. They actually, they ha- I'm sorry, I believe in, in, and I don't know how Canadian law is set up, but if this was in the United States, I'm sorry. I believe that as a citizen, I be- if, if I believe the government is doing something wrong, I have an opportunity for redress. I have the ability to go and say, no, bullshit. And and there are administrative processes to go through. And if those administrative processes, me going to the legislature, the, the wildlife, if I go to my game warden and then I go to the biology or I go to the, the regional directors and if I go to the commission and that doesn't work and I go up to the legislature or whatever, I... I I can go up the chain of command, if I so to speak, on the administrative process. And if they're just ignoring me, if I have, if I believe I have an actual case, and I can literally articulate a legal case, and the administrative process is ignoring me, I have the ability to file lawsuit. And it's up to a judge whether or not they're going to hear my complaint against the government. I'm at this point, without knowing anything else. I'm going to place strong money on the fact that they're going to hear, a judge is going to listen to this. A judge is going to say, yep, put it on the docket. We'll hear it. We'll argue it. Which now means that the the provincial government is going to have to spend sports, I don't know, I'm guessing in some way, shape, or form, they're going to end up spending sportsman dollars to defend this freaking lawsuit when the first number one, 11 parentheses one, except with authorization with the minister. So you're telling me that you can actually incentivize people. You can actually pay people. And quite honestly, you could actually get, you could actually put a bounty on wildlife if the minister just gives you a letter saying it's okay. I'm sorry, sportsman. The freaking hell are you doing? Go to the freaking minister and get a freaking letter. Just just get a letter from the minister. And if the minister is not for, of the of the fish and wildlife there is not going to give you a letter, well then quite honestly, you equally have a redress against your government. Hey fuckers, excuse me. You say that I want to do this, I want to do this 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 contest. These guys are claiming it's a violation of the of the statute. I don't think it is. They do. 
Don't argue whether coyotes are sustainable in the area. Don't say that you've, well, we've always hunted coyotes and this is not a big deal. It's not a really big deal. Who gives a shit about your, your value set and, your, and your, your logic and reason based on the sustainability of coyotes? That's not what they're arguing. You go to court, you as a sportsman go into the public forum and someone says you're violating law and you come in there like, well, it's, they're sustainable. They're, there's nothing wrong here. Uh, eh, you're wrong. And you're going to lose because the people are going to look at you like a dumbass that you are. And they're going to be like, that's not what they're arguing. We don't care about whether or not the coyotes are sustainable. Are you violating the law? Yes or no? Based on what I'm reading here, sounds like you might be. So here you are. You have a, a, a disagreement that you need to take before the minister. At this point, Cheshire should be... They've already last year had conversations with the minister, apparently, and were told by the minister that they can't do certain things because it would be a violation under here. Well, then go back to the freaking minister and get a freaking letter saying that we can do this. Why are you fighting? Why are you fighting? Why are you... you Why? Why? Why are you fighting something that is just... Just get the freaking letter. And if they are not going... If the ministry is not going to give you the letter then you, you fight the ministry. Now the ministry is le- le- the ministry is negligent in their duties. They're shirking their duties and they're setting you at Cheshire's or whoever up for failure. <clears throat> and if that's the case and they want to you know, shut the, then just restructure your damn contest if that's what you want to do. But why are you, why, 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 why are you fighting? Why are you fighting? Just get the damn piece of paper. What? You don't have to like the activist. You don't have to respect them. You don't have to value them. But if they've got a legal argument, don't freaking try to dismiss it with some bullshit about North American model of wildlife conservation and the sustainability of hunting in the face of, of ecological processes. About- Shut up. This is a this is an argument about the, the, the standing uh, under law. Well, yes, hunters. And, and, and to the person that shared this with me, I, I trust me, I, I understand. I don't like the fact that that, that hunters are, are coming under attack. But then by the same token, if hunters are being dumbasses, eh, you open yourself up to attack. We're gonna part of what I want to have a discussion is, is is about a lot of what this is this is literally goes to the core of what Matt Ranella was talking about on some other previous podcast and what people just lost their shit over is we you can see on social media, on YouTube and other places, sportsmen just being utter flaming dumbasses. You not shooting yourself in the foot. You're cutting yourself off at the knees, flailing around. You're cutting yourself off at the knees. You're cutting your own arms off, and you're running around like Monty Python, going, "It's just been a flesh wound. It's just been a flesh wound. Get back here, okay? What are you doing? Don't be a dumbass, okay? In this case, why are you fighting the activists? Demand from your government to do what the government is supposed to do." Give me a damn permission letter. And if they won't, then then you sportsmen might want to go, okay, well, if the if the ministry will not, are we actually then doing something here that, that's skirting this to where we could be putting ourselves up 
for uh, vulnerability. And more importantly, given what was stated about Toronto, about people starting to more and more people feeding the coyotes, where it seems like there might be a movement, at least within some of the populace, where they're starting to value the emotional attachment to coyotes more and more. You've, I don't have a clue in the world what whether Ontario provincial law allows for ballot initiatives or anything like that. But if the if the stem of the tide, uh, or if the if the tide is moving in the in the way of more people becoming emotionally Tar, uh, attach or valuing the 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 coyotes. Something like this may not seem like a big idea, to, a big deal to you now, and you're like, who gives a freaking shit about these activists? Well, we're going to do our. Okay, go ahead and do your thing now. Go ahead and thumb your nose in front of the activists now, because five years from now you're you're screwed. Because. The people of Canada or Ontario say, you know what? We're not going to allow any coyote hunting anymore. What, 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 wait, what, what? So you had, you won this little skirmish that you didn't even need to freaking fight. Or you won this little battle again that you didn't even need to fight. But yet you lost, you lost the long-term war in the popular, in the public opinion of the people of, of, of again, Toronto is probably going to be driving the politics of Ontario. You know, or Toronto and, and the other big cities, right? What the hell, man? We've got to put our emotion aside. I, it, there's an old adage that talks about there's it, many cases people are opposed to an idea simply because they don't like the people that came up with the idea. The idea is valid. Some some idea is valid. You probably, if you enter, any of you work in a in a, in a business environment or a, or a, a workplace environment where there's a lot of people collaborating on something and putting ideas on the table, you know that there's people that you don't like or that don't like you or whatever. Somebody comes up with an idea and you're like, shut the freaking hell up. That's bullshit. No, it was a good idea. You just don't like the guy and you or gal and you don't want them to have credit for it and you don't want to see them elevated in any sort of accolades or any promotions. Or any, so screw you, I'm going to fight against that idea. You see it in politics all the time. If the Democrats come up with a good idea, the Republicans are like, nah, screw that. Or the Republicans, more likely, come up with a very good idea and the, the, the leftists are like, nope, shut it down. Why? Well, because it wasn't our idea. Awesome. So you're screwing us all simply because you are emotionally immature and you can't handle the fact that someone else came up with a good idea. Again, long-standing adage. It's amazing what can be accomplished when you don't care who gets the credit. Right? It seems like this contest has an easy out. Get a freaking go to the freaking minister and get a letter. If it, if the minister won't address it, then you have a you have a, a, a parallel converging issue with the activists to the minister. And I bet you any money. It, I'm sorry, I just thought of this. I'll bet you in the public eye, you would actually the sportsman community would actually gain some credibility if they said, you know what? Listen, we disagree with the activists here. We think we are under the law, but we hear their argument, and so we also are petitioning the Ministry of Fish and Wildlife or whatever, Mines, Natural Resources, blah blah blah. We are petitioning the minister to issue us this letter. We are on two sides of this coin. But not coin. We're on two sides of this issue, but the both sides of this issue terminates right at there at the minister. So we are both going to the minister and we demand, like the activists, we are standing with the activists demanding that the minister address this. Can we do it or not? 
You know how much credibility you would have in the in the non-hunting co- in the public if you did that. It's be- because why? Because you would be showing that you are here. You're listening. You're not just completely alien. You're listening to their argument. You're listening to what they're saying. You don't have to value it. You don't have to accept it. But you are showing empathy that you're saying, ah, I hear you. I understand where you're coming from. I can see your point of view. I disagree. But your point is made. It is. It, it could be deemed as valid. So therefore, we also are going to converge on the minister and we're going to ask, we're going to demand that the minister do their job. Are you telling me as the conservative-minded sports, or just, it doesn't even matter what your conservative value or your value set is, conservative or, or progressive, you're telling me if you don't have a, a, an issue with the Division of Wildlife or the Fish and Wildlife you know, agency in your state, if if they if there was if they were doing something, if if you needed something from them and they weren't going to give it to you, you wouldn't want to address it. Bullshit. Because when the when the agencies acquiesce to animal activist require or, or requests, the the sportsmen lose their shit. Of course, you want to have redress with your with your government agency. Then why can't the animal activists have the same thing? Come on. You can't be a hypocrite here, all right? This sounds like a cut and dry legal case. I'll bet you this ends up going to court. It would not it would not surprise me if the judge looks at that looks at it and goes, "Uh, these guys have a case, minister. What the freaking hell are you doing?" And I like, and and maybe now the ministry is going to have to to make a decision. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to keep up with what's going on here, but this is a situation where sportsmen. Why are you fighting battles you don't need to fight? If there's an, if there's a, if there's a way, number one, if there's a way to address a concern and diffuse the situation, just freaking address it. And if, if there isn't, if you still have a disagreement, if you show some empathy, you show some understanding and you listen to what they're saying and you come to, you can actually work to a, a resolution rather than just try to just trash them and dismiss them and, and, and badmouth them and, and you're going to gain so much credibility. All right. Last one. I'll try to make this one a little quick. I know it's been, I know we're running along, but I hope you're with me still. So the other one came up for, for agency personnel and, and this, okay. So whether we're a, a average sportsman, whether an organization, a, a conservation organization, a sportsman organization, or in this case, whether we're wildlife professionals, we can allow emotion to cloud, a cloud our overall judgment for the broad, bigger picture. And I think it can set up set us up for failure. Now, for instance, here's this one. South Dakota Game and Fish, uh, Game Fish and Parks, South Dakota Fish and wildlife, parks and wildlife, whatever you want to call it. Nest Predator Bounty Program, right? So a few years back, South Dakota enacted uh, a resolution, passed a resolution that, or it, no, 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 a couple years ago, let, let's just set this up right. A couple years ago, the governor, Christy Noem, basically pushed through a program that was going to open up a nest predator trapping season that was going to, I believe, uh, it starts for youth. It starts March 1st. 
And then for adults, it opens up April 1st, but then it runs through July 1st. Okay. So this is about, this is, this program was designed to allow trapping of nest predators, raccoons, skunks, possums, okay, and fox. Um, during the time in which net, you know, nesting ground birds, pheasants and ducks were most vulnerable, vulnerable to nest predators. Now, this is the issue that, from what I understand, Governor Noam bypassed the the Game and Fish Commission, and they bypassed the legis. She bypassed the legislature. Now, I don't know <clears throat> the details, but what I've been told is she bypassed the the proper administrative process. I don't know why. I don't know the backstory, but that's what I've been told, and that's part of where this angst comes from. I believe on a lot of uh, professionals. With that being said. The bounty program begins, uh, like I said, March 1st. And, and, and so the Game and Fish Commission last year and this year, or excuse me, last year, I believe, they passed it uh, They passed it last year for both 2021 and 2022. So what I understand is Christy Noam, Governor Christy Noam, bypassed the commission and the legislature, but the commission went ahead and passed the resolution to allow it to happen. Okay. Nest Predator Bounty Program. Now, it is a bounty program, okay? So that time period I just said, uh, overview, South Dakota Game and Fish and Parks is focused on reducing localized populations of nest predators as a way to enhance pheasants and duck, pheasant and duck nest success. While at the same time, okay, I want you to pay attention to this. While at the same time, increasing participation in trapping from all ages, Trapping is an intentional, excuse me, trapping is an intention to experience, explore, and create lasting memories while making a difference for managing wildlife in South Dakota. The practice of trapping nest predators during the nesting season has been a management technique used for decades. Trapping is central to wildlife management, conservation, and sustaining our state's outdoor traditions for the next generation. <clears throat> Primary goals include, one, enhance duck and pheasant nest success. Number two, increase trapping participation, awareness, and education. Number three, ensure South Dakota's hunting and trapping heritage remains strong for the next 100 years. Number four, get the next generation involved and interested in outdoor recreation, conservation, and wildlife management while increasing support for habitat. Let me say that last part again. Get the next generation involved and interested in outdoor recreation, conservation, and wildlife management while increasing support for habitat. We're not talking about in in lieu of habitat, at the expense of habitat, beyond not giving a shit about habitat. We're talking about increasing the support while increasing the support for habitat. Raccoon, striped skunk, badger, oh, badger, possum, and red fox are eligible species for this program. Participation in South is for South Dakota residents. Uh, here's the bounty. Participants will receive $5 per tail for following species outlined above. Participants must submit the tail bone and entire tail of the species to receive, receive payment. Um, sorry. Mouth getting a little dry. Participants can submit up to $590 worth. So basically 59 animals. Each person can trap up to 59 animals and, and get paid for them per household. Mm. 
I guess it's a, it's per household, so your family's uh, aggregate. All right. Participants then receive an email of conf- confirmation, conf- confirmation of transaction. Blah 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 blah. Goes in all the little decides. <clears throat> Responsive management survey results. Okay, so they did a survey. All right, so let's let's look at this in a minute. In the fall of 2019, when this was, I guess, kicked off, responsive man, or 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 is it a year after? I don't remember. But anyway, early on, in the fall of 2019, responsive management completed an independent survey of the South of South Dakota residents and program participants, measuring their op- opinions on trapping and the nest predator bounty program. Overall, 83% of South Dakota residents approved of the program. The complete report can be found here. And you can click on that. Okay. What am I hearing within the professional communities? That this is a bullshit program. It's not doing anything. It's not going to do anything because there's too much research that shows that, you know, trapping nest predators is not the way to increase nest success. It doesn't work. That that habitat, you know, only only doing habitat work has ever shown to increase nest success. And, and this is a waste of funds, a waste of time. We're pissed. At this, this is an absolute senseless killing of animals. And this means just trashing the program. It's like, okay, hold on a minute. Number one, when you listen to some of the people that are having conversations, some of them are angry that originally this bypassed the actual agency commission legislative process. I, I, I have no statement against that. You're absolutely right. It did. It, apparently, it, apparently, my understanding is it did. And if that is the case, if that is true, that was wrong. Okay. But yet here we are. The commission has approved it since it was put forward. So if the if the commission was pissed off about it and, and didn't want it and, and, and the biologists and the resource managers were like, this is bullshit, it's not going to work, because we can. Um, I can go over to... Uh, there, there, here, here's your, here's your, your rebuttal. Local news: South Dakota Predator Bounty Program, successful wildlife management, or needless killing of 134,000 animals. Okay, a state, and here's the organization, and this is South Dakota, South Dakota, Jesus Christ, South Dakota Newswatch.org. Um, <clears throat> a state-sanctioned pheasant protection program that pays South Dakota youths and adults ten dollars for every raccoon, skunk, and other predator, and other predatory predator they trap has led to the killing of more than 134,000 animals in the past three years with no scientific evidence that the program is working. Known as the Nest Predator Bounty Program, the effort to boost pheasant and duck populations by paying trappers to kill animals that eat eggs and hatchlings of pheasants and ducks began in 2019 and recently completed its third year of operation. The program that takes place for a few months during the spring pheasant nesting season has been approved for another year in 2022. Little common ground can be found in assessing the merits of the program methods excuse me, merits or methods of the program, which has been described as both a wildlife management success and an inhumane, senseless killing of wild animals. 
Some state officials, including Governor Christy Noem, who in, who first implemented the program, and new Game Fish and Parks Secretary Kevin Roebling, see the bounty program as an effective method to reduce predation on pheasants and also encourage young people to move away from playing computer games and take up trapping as a hobby instead. South Dakota is home to a lucrative but steadily declining pheasant hunting industry that generated nearly $300 million in direct spending in the state in 2016, a majority of that from non-resident hunters. Noam, Roebling, and a majority of members of the, of the State Game, Fish, and Parks Commission, the policymaking arm of the state wildlife management, want the, the program to continue. The bounty program has, has seen a recent spike in youth participation, Roebling said. It is really a success story when you look at, quote, it's really a success story when you look at enhancing our trapping traditions and outdoor heritage, he said. Roebling acknowledged there is no data or concrete evidence to show that the bounty program has improved pheasant or duck numbers or enhanced successful nesting rates, but he remains convinced it is working. Quote, as far as qualifying as far as qualifying pheasant abundance. We don't have any research design set up for that, Roebling said, but we are confident that this bounty program is enhancing nest success, end quote. Opponents of the program, including some influential members of the South Dakota wildlife management community, are less confident that paying less confident that paying youths and adults to kill five species of animals is a proper way to boost pheasant and duck populations. Gary Jensen, Rapid City lawyer, just completed his time as member of the Game, Fish, and Parks Commission. He most recently served as chair of the commission and voted against the resolution to extend the bounty program. Quote, there's no science that supports it, Jensen said. The department can't show any evidence on the bounty program and it doesn't have any program in place to determine if it's increasing pheasant numbers, end quote. The bounty program was first implemented in 2019 by Noam as part of her Second Century Initiative aimed at protecting and expanding pheasant habitat and populations in the state. So far, the state has spent about $2.4 million on the program, which is funded through hunting, fishing, and trapping license fees. Half of the costs, about $1.2 million, have been paid in bounties to the program participants. Quote, in parentheses, um, <clears throat> Payments were $10 per animal in 2019 and 2021. They were $5 per animal in 2020. Um, no. Another $9,600 was spent in the first year uh, on a program to give away 16,500 traps for free to about 5,000 people who requested them. Personnel costs totally about totaled about $217,000 over the first two years. Sorry, those little clicks in there where somebody texted me. I forgot I was watering my yard with a little rain tractor and I forgot to put the stop little block in it. And so it went into the road and my neighbor picked it up. <laughs> um, on a basic level, the program works like this. Adults licensed to trap or youths who want to participate bait traps, bait Oh, sorry, the sentence was confusing. Adults licensed to trap or youths who want to participate bait traps from April through July to capture animals, which are then typically killed with a rifle. The tails of the animals are cut off, collected, and submitted to the state at designated locations. Participates are then paid for each $10 for each qualifying uh, tail. Uh, target animals include raccoons, mostly frequent bounty animals, such as skunks, opossums, red fox badgers, Oh, carcasses of the animals which are not good to eat are discarded, though some may have uh, some may remove pelts first. Um, 
The state encourages participants to bear the carcass, but there's no requirement to do so, Roebling said. In 2019, the first year of the bounty program, 54,471 animals were killed. In 2020, the number was 26,390. In 2021, 53,728 animals were killed. Raccoons make up mostly or make up almost 80% of the roughly 134,600 animals killed under the program so far. About 91% of the bounties paid were in the Eastern River region of South Dakota, where pheasants are most prevalent. Program participants in Minnehaha County have uh, have consistently been the top bounty recipients. Public opposition to the program has grown over the time. The state sanctioned a survey early on during the program that showed 78% of of the 400 random response strongly or moderately approved of the program after questionnaires explained to them the rationale behind behind it. However, 62% of those respondents said they knew nothing about the program before being called. So a lot of people didn't know anything about the program. But once they found out about the program and were explained what the program was about, Remember, it's not just about the nest predators. It's about the four the, the four objectives that they outlined there. When they were explained what was going out, roughly 78% of the respondents supported it. Okay, Randomized respondents across the, the area that surveyed. In March 2020, before the Game and Fish Commission was about to vote to extend the program, which it ultimately did, about 400 public comments were received regarding the bounty program, more than 90% of those in opposition. Some public commenters called the program brutal, brutal, cruel, senseless, and inhumane. Others argued that it was simply a waste of money, had no proven results in regard to propagation of pheasants or ducks, and had led to the killing of helpless animals by trappers, including children, seeking a payment. Jensen said said he thought that roughly $1 million allocated to the trap giveaway could have been better used on habitat creation or protection or to get young people engaged in some other aspect of the outdoors, as opposed to trapping. Instead of a million dollars in traps, what if they had given shotguns away so people could go hunting pheasants or to provide kids with fishing rods and reels, Jensen said. I'm going to, my rebuttal of that statement is irrelevant, but I have one. Uh, the program has also come under criticism for how it was implemented. Chris, critics say Noam initiated the program largely outside the typical, typical process of review by the public and by the Game and Fish and Parks Commission, which sets policy. Noam's office did not respond to inquiries from the Newswatch and referred all questions to the Game Fish and Parks. Roebling said the two main goals of the Predator uh, Bounty Program are to strengthen pheasant, pheasant duck strengthen pheasant and duck populations in the wild by reducing the number of prey animals and to get more South Dakotan youth engaged in outdoor activities. Now, he's focused on the two, but there again, there were four. Roebling said he looks, success, looks at successful propagation of the state's pheasant population as a three-legged stool that relies on weather, habitat, and predator management. That's not an unreasonable statement. From a, from a wildlife standpoint, the, uh, the management standpoint, that's not an unreasonable statement. You've got to have the weather. You've got to have the, the the habitat. And in those cases where predation is just waylaying the piss out of things, predator management can be a, a component of that three-legged stool. That's, that's, that's not an invalid statement. Stable weather patterns that aren't too wet or too dry, especially in the spring hatching season, are positive for pheasants, Roebling said. But with weather and unpredictable and uncontrollable force, Roebling said, the state is focused on the other two components of pheasant population management. 
and that habitat management and the predator boundary pro bounty program are key point are parts of those efforts. The state lost one of its only measures to estimate the pheasant population when the Game and Fish and, Game and, Fish and Parks Commission voted to end its annual roadside brood count of young pheasants after 2018. The, sp the state spends about $22 million a, a year in license fees on wildlife habitat expansion, protection, and access, Roebling said. So the state stopped actually doing surveys for their pheasants, and the state is spending $22 million a year using license fees in habitat expansion, expansion protection, and access, Roebling said. So the state's working on the habitat thing. So they in this program, they wanted to work on the predator nest predator thing, the predator management thing. So far, other than people bitching about circumventing the actual process of going through the Game of Fish Commission, it's a reasonable, the, the, the intent behind what's going on seems reasonable to me. Now, of course, there's going to be the animal activists, the animal lovers, the non, the anti-hunters, blah, blah, blah. Of course, they're going to be opposed to it. Okay. And quite honestly, I can hear an argument uh, from the hunting public about the quote unquote wanton waste of these animals because the pelts are not going to be good for anything and the carcasses are not going to be good, good for anything. So there's, there's this idea that you're just killing an animal, you just kill an animal. Table that a second. <clears throat> Roebling said the bounty program has a proven track record for preserving the state's hunting and trapping heritage by encouraging more young people to become active in the outdoors. In the first year, 11% of the bounty program participants were under the age of 18. That percentage rose to 13% in the second year. And in 2021, 29% of the 2,800, 2800 participants in the bounty program were under 18, Roebling said. We are absolutely seeing more engagement with our youth. So that's a metric that we're clearly seeing success, he said. Here we go. Research mixed on success of predator removal. Predator control methods and paid bounty programs in particular are a controversial way of protecting desirable species of animals. And the science regarding success of the program is murky at best. South Dakota's program is unique in the number of species of animals targeted, but the bounty programs on coyotes are commonly are common throughout the American West and Florida, has an ongoing bounty program that pays trappers to remove invasive pythons from the Everglades. Okay, Sorry, I'm getting a little tired. We're going to try to wrap this up. One study published in 2016 in Scientific Journal Frontiers in Ecology and Environment reviewed 12 other studies of predator control programs to protect livestock in North America and Europe. The review found that six predator removal efforts, two lethal, four non-lethal, ultimately led to sex to successful protection of livestock. Two led to greater predation on livestock and four had no effect. It is notable that predator control efforts reviewed in the study were performed under highly controlled conditions and did not include bounty programs involved members of the public. In the end, study authors recommended that only predator control programs that are closely monitored and show scientifically proven results be continued. Quote, we, re we, re we recommend that policymakers suspend predator control efforts that lack evidence for functional effectiveness and that scientists focus on stringent standards of evidence and tests of predator control. A uh, more specific study reported in, the, in wildlife biology examined, examined predator control that boosts populations, wide, 
they, they concluded that wide-scale, long-term, lightly regulated predator control pro- programs often do not have the intended effect of protecting a desired species. In consequence, predator control is often conducted as, um, for this one, it was a grouse con- conservation measurement, but um, the evidence was lacking that it was helping. Our suggestion, or our, our results suggest predator control is likely to achieve short-term conservation benefits for, you know, grouse, but, or, which is a ground nesting bird, but well-designed, if it was well-designed and rigorously conducted. We suspect, however, the majority of control programs conducted for conservation do not meet this standard. Okay. So that's where it starts going down through. It, it, it's, it starts bringing up more and more articles and studies and everything else that show that, you know, if it's not done right, it's really not effective. And so this is where I jump in and I'm like, okay. And, it, and again, I'm, this has gone really long and my, I'm getting tongue tied. Um, where they showed that block predator management wasn't success. There, there, there's all sorts of evidence that what was done in the past and what other places have done in the past did not show the level of success that the researchers wanted. In some cases, it helped a little bit. In other cases, it didn't help. And in some cases, it exacerbated uh, predation and made it worse. You can hear conversations regarding this with wild turkeys and people talking about trapping certain, you know, in certain habitats, in certain areas of the United States, you go in and you do predator management on, you take out one predator and then all of a sudden another predator fills in the gap that the, that, that you, the one you removed and then ends up killing more of the species that you wanted to protect anyway, where the first predator was actually keeping the really bad predator at bay. Yes. The predator number one was killing some turkey nests, but predator number two was worse at it. And predator number one was actually helping keep predator number two at bay. Okay, so there's all sorts of dynamics when we come to predator control and predator management. However, the thing is, there are studies out there that show carefully designed, rigorous and in, 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 uh, intensive predator management strategies can, in fact, help nest success or at least fawning success or survival of the initial hatching of the eggs or initial birthing of, of the, the little guys. Okay. So now long-term survivability of chicks, notwithstanding who there, that's a whole nother discussion or fawns or whatever. But if it's done right, there are studies that do show that it does work. So what do we have here? We, so what, what I'm, what, what you end up hearing a lot is we don't like the program because it wasn't done properly administratively by the governor. And number two, this is bullshit. It doesn't work. And we're just needlessly killing animals. Oh, okay. But we've got three, we got other objectives in this program and the metrics of the other objective of the program seem to be moving the needle in a positive direction. Because remember, if we're a wildlife and much of the criticism, I'm not going to address the criticism from the animal activists and the non-hunting side, the animal activists or the animal lover side of the the equation. Of course, they're not going to want just senseless, needless killing. And so if you're going to show me a study design or show me that there's no statistical benefit to doing it, it sounds senseless. It sounds needless. And the study and the the statistics show it is. So I've got, uh, there's a feather in the cap for anybody that wants to shut this, this whole thing down. 
I'm going to focus on the resource professionals, wildlife biologists and wildlife managers that are that are they're looking at this with angst and and casting their their judgment down upon this, saying it should be stopped, it's bullshit, it's pointless, blah blah blah. Number one, any biologist or wildlife manager that values hunting, trapping on the landscape as a reasonable and viable and legitimate management tool for implementation under the North American model of wildlife conservation ought to be trying to make sure that their state heritage and public value set for hunting and especially trapping, which is one of the most brutally persecuted methods of wildlife management and quite quite honestly, recreation, consumptive use recreation, that is the one that is the most ardently persecuted right there next to bow hunting, okay? So if you are as a, a resource professional, a wildlife biologist, a wildlife manager that believes in the North American model of wildlife conservation and believes that there has there should be the preservation of all management strategies on the table for resource professionals to be able to implement whenever they need to, you damn well better be per, per, uh, uh, promoting and trying to preserve trapping as a viable alternative in your state. This, one of the objectives of this is to ingrain youth, ingrain in the public that trapping is a valuable thing on the landscape and let's get some kids involved with it, get them involved with trapping at an early age to where they develop develop a value set, even if they're not participating in it, their classmates are seeing it and watching it to where they develop that new generation of youth devalue develops a value set for trapping. That's a freaking good thing, man. So from a wildlife professional, if, if, and that's a big word, capital letters, if you wildlife professionals do in fact value sportsmen, hunters, trappers on the landscape, as the mechanism, me- mechanism by which you can direct management of your species in your state. I'm sorry. Programs like this, that gets a check in my box of, okay, that's, that's a good program. Let, let's, let's explore it. Okay. Support the damn thing. You're getting kids out there involved in, in, in the outdoors and a controversial and a, and a di- let's just put it this way, a dying, a dying art of trapping. Okay. Now I don't give a shit whether or not Christy Noam circumvented the proper process. Okay. So she did guess what the political process in play approved it. The game and fish parks commission approved it. That validated. It doesn't matter. It doesn't justify what she did, but it just certainly did validate it. And it put it in play on the landscape. Guess what? The survey results of the of the general now it's a it's only 400 people. I understand that. Maybe that's a small survey, but they freaking did what they damn well did a survey and it came back at 70 what 78% of the respondents after they were explained what was going on of the public randomized public supported it. So what you're telling me is you have the public supporting it largely and it's moving the needle on getting kids out in the in the field. At this point you have two public relations wins in your in your cap. Okay. If you don't like the fact that that there's no metric, 
There's no study design. There, there, there's all these problems. Here's my challenge to the, the wildlife professionals. Stop with just attacking for those that are. Stop with just attacking. And how about you cooperatively and collaboratively come to the table and say, okay, this is what you guys want to do. This is how you guys want to do it. Let's start having meetings because again, you know damn well from previous research, which there's probably a stack this high that you could pull from. If you know where a study in the past has failed to meet the metric of significant benefit for nest a nest predator removal effort has failed, you also better have been able to identify why it failed. And if you can identify why these things failed, we all talk about adaptive management. That's the whole purpose behind research in the first place. You go out and you research something, you try to figure out what you can do, what you can't do, what the limitations are, what the strengths are, and then you take the strengths, you put them on the ground. You take the limitations and you try to freaking minimize those limitations and turn them into assets and you put it on the ground again and you evaluate. You watch what happens and you take the results from that and you take the benefits and the great things, you put them back on the ground, you take those limitations, you tweak them and you put it back. You put that knowledge on the ground in multiple iterations and you build up the success from what the limitations you learned in previous. I understand that many biologists separate themselves from, I just did the study and I just want to do the research. I don't want to engage in wildlife management because quite honestly, that's where it gets freaking ugly and scary and dirty in the management side of it. It's easy to sit behind a, a computer and, and go out and, and tag animals, run, do the sexy stuff of fly around in a helicopter or, or go out and put out traps and, and, and radio collar ducks and pheasants and grouse and deer and oh my. It, it, the, all that stuff is sexy and it's really easy to sit in your air conditioned or your temperature control office and sit there and on a computer and run a model and puke out a result and publish a paper and get it cited and do your due diligence. I did the research. That's fine. Whoopee woo. Because it's up to the wildlife manager to take that information and then put it on the ground in a practical manner. This is where I, many times I see biologists and managers failing to come together because the bio, there's some biologists, again, personal value sets and actual personal individual personalities play into some people are introverts they they don't they, they just they, they are they're statistically minded they love the research aspect but they just really don't deal well with the public and man when it comes to putting stuff on the ground and actually using the stuff they're out of it it's not a, it's I'm not being rude there's some people that just don't get it. They, they, they are they are mathematicians, they are researchers, and that's 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 my job. And I've met many of them and I've talked to them where they literally say, my job is to do the research and pass it off. And I don't worry about it after that. Unless the research or the manager comes back and asks for clarification, but don't ask me about how to put it on the ground. That's not my job. That's the manager's job. So the manager needs to put that in place. Okay. This is where the biologists need to start being better at communicating, working with managers. And then in this case, okay, I know you don't like it. Well, then stop, stop persecuting it for the sake of persecuting it. And how about you sit there and you say, okay, you're, you, the agency is going to do it. I don't like it, but the agency is going to do it. Here's how we can do it the best way possible. 
Here are the pitfalls that you're probably going to run into. Here are the ways that we've learned in all these other research projects where you might find some success. And then put it on the managers to say, okay, we're going to, on the researchers, we're going to put in place a monitoring and a statistical analysis of the effort that the state wants to go into. You guys ought to be doing it. Okay? Obviously, it takes manpower and money. Okay, I'm just telling you, you should be able to work into that. Managers, start implementing the successes of previous research on what you're educating the public on. Because I'll tell you right now, no, look at my area. At all areas, you can't, mm, there's so much here. And I'm, I'm trying to wrap this up. I apologize. What are we looking at now? <laughs> okay, so long one. You can take research from other areas and find all sorts of limitations. Oh, it didn't work, doesn't work, doesn't work. The problem is when you look at what didn't work here and then you try to put that into place, the, the environmental conditions in a different place are, are wildly different. So this is where that adaptive management has to come into play. This is where wildlife professionals ought to have the, the, the scientific in integrity to be able to look objectively at these things, pick the stuff that works, discard the stuff that doesn't isn't relevant, and then extrapolate. Anyway... I can tell you right now from, from my experience, my example right here in the ground that I manage here in Northwest Kansas, if I wanted to go down, I, I, I'm, I actually would love to see this be enacted in Kansas. I really would. Now, granted, I would like to see it implemented in a more robust manner with better science behind it on, on the design and how we're going to go about it. But I would love to have this ability in Kansas. Why? Because if I could go down and trap nest predators, now, if I went down on the, on the Solomon river and I saturated the ever living piss out of my rip, my chunk of river bottoms, I wouldn't move the needle at all. I couldn't catch raccoons, badgers, skunks. We don't have foxes. We have too many coyotes, but I couldn't I could not trap nest predators, quote unquote nest predators, fast enough to suppress the population without just it just backfilling. There's so much movement and the, the number of raccoons that we have is insane. And so if I just suppressed the, the amount of predators in my little footprint, it would just, it'd be like me sweeping water. As soon as I made one swoop, the water just pours back in. I'd have no effect. And it literally would be an utter just killing of wildlife that was killing wildlife. Now, granted, am I taking mouths off the table? Yeah. Am I taking potential animals that are going to chew up a nest off the table? Yeah. I'm sorry, it is. Now, whether that becomes statistically significant in this particular area, I don't know. But I am taking animals off the table. What did we just talk about a moment ago with mountain lions and feline immunodeficiency virus? The more the male population increased on that population, the more transmission of disease. Whereas in hunting, when we were removing a segment of the population, the disease transmission went down. Huh, that's interesting, isn't it? So if we went out there and had part of this program, we again, in Kansas here, our, our raccoon population is absolutely stupidly high. It is plague proportions of our, it, it doesn't, no, I digress on the bait piles. Anyway, it's stupid. It's stupid. And at some point, we're going to have a distemper outbreak. Some point, we're going to have a disease outbreak that just comes through and just wipes it. 
Is that responsible on the landscape? Is that what we want for our wildlife population on the landscape? And don't give me the shit, well, that's nature's way. I mean, that's the natural side. Bullshit. Because I've also had, I've gone into, into wildlife meetings where, again, urban development, urban interaction, whatever, where you have a, a population of elk that is increasing, okay? The rep- the reproductive rate and the, the, the recruitment rate of an elk population is increasing in the face of urban de- development. And people wanted to stop the urban development because it was going to negatively impact the, the elk population. I'm like, well, hold on a minute. Don't you have a, a problem with the elk population right now, you can't, you're, you're telling me as a resource professional that you have no solution in which to reduce the population of elk on the landscape because they're getting out they're They're increasing to the point where they're out of balance of the, of the landscape in and around this, this suburban environment. But then on the other side of the coin, you're going to argue against increased development of residential housing structures because it could negatively impact reproductive rates on the elk. Wouldn't that help your overall population issue that you currently have? Quote, we don't manage populations by, uh, uh, you know, using human, you know, population, you know, using the housing developments and habitat, blah, blah. So in other words, you don't like the solution. It, it would be a solution. You're, you're arguing outside, uh, two, out, out both sides of your freaking ass right now, but but you don't like that solution, okay? So here you are. We've got more raccoons than we know what to do with. At some point, we're going to have a disease outbreak. How in the world could we do the responsible thing and maybe suppress the population, get it back down to a, a long, long-term sustainable level, to where we're not setting ourselves up for a disastrous environmental situation where disease just wipes through raccoons, possums, skunks, everything else. Maybe a bounty program, maybe a, a, an incentivization of reducing this these nest predators would get people out on the landscape to reduce some of these numbers. Would it be significant? I don't know. But would it help? Yeah, I think the argument could be made. You don't always have to have a, a p-value behind your your actions. Again, unless you got animal activists come and want to target it. Okay, fine. Maybe you do. But you have data to show, show and there's studies out there that show high in, high nose-to-nose contact with a whole bunch of shitting critters that are way outside their carrying capacity. That's not a good thing. Okay? So here's a program where maybe, maybe... They're actually maybe they're not moving the ne- metric on the nest predators or the nest success thing, but are they helping other things? That'd be interesting to know. But anyway, I, I digress. On the river bottom, no, I would not be able to move the needle probably on saving nests. However, I defy you. Anybody can come out. You want to come out and walk the ground with me? Come on out. Because I've got places where we have a mile, mile and a half, two miles away from any river corridor, any tri- basically these isolated patches of CRP where you've got some in the middle of this wide open, vast agriculture landscape, there's a pocket of native warm season grasses. It's CRP and maybe some plum thickets and stuff in there. Isolated out in the middle of nowhere. Pheasants, quail, deer. Okay? Over time, because of the population of raccoons we have, there has been randomized dist- uh, uh, dispersal across these vast landscapes, especially with the increase of corn on the landscape that provides food for a lot of these critters throughout the summer, fall, and winter months, okay, and spring, the leftovers. 
over time, there has been randomized, random dispersal that has let raccoons, let skunks, and especially badgers are going to be out there, have co- nest predators have colonized these areas. They're living in old culverts. They're living in a brush pile pushed up from, you know, from agriculture stuff. They're living in badger holes. They're living in coyote holes. You can watch raccoons just wandering across native prairie during the middle of the day. They're way the hell away from any quote unquote traditional habitat where raccoons would be and where the bulk of usual, uh, emigration, immigration dispersal occurs. You're telling me that if I go up into these isolated pockets and I surround it, whether I surround it myself or me and two other, I put together a cooperative of my my neighbors and we go and we saturate the ever-living shit out of that area and we trap every nest predator we can find in that area. You're telling me that we wouldn't move the needle? I, 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 def- I, 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 would, I understand the science and you can point to science, but I would love to do that experiment because I bet you any money we would move that needle. We don't have rat snakes out. We have bull snakes, but we don't have that many of them. Yes, we've got bobcats. We've got coyotes. Okay. So there's other predators out there that would be on the landscape, but are they are going to be nest predators? Less so than raccoons and, and, and especially raccoons. Now, granted, I make no, I make no guarantee on once that nest does hatch, whether or not the hawks are going to nail them, the owls are going to nail them, whether the bobcats are going to nail them. We've got the best habitat that we can have due to the drought. All right. We have the best habitat that we have due to our crop rotation. We've got the best grass that we can have. What do we do? What do we don't have? Functional predator management. That's literally the only thing else that we have on the landscape. We really can't as managers on some of this ground where the landowners do not have a high intrinsic value for for wildlife, increasing habitat components on the landscape. The only other thing that we can even explore is predator management. But the only predator management that has ever been shown to be successful, and there's research to show that it is, is this timed, right? you know, the timing of the, the removal has to be around the actual window in which the predators are going to be impacting the resource. And then the intensity level has to be such where it suppresses it. If you weren't, the same people that are, that are slamming the shit out of this type of program are the same type of people that are over with the National Deer Alliance or Association, which used to be the Quality Deer Management Association, talking about putting together cooperatives, management cooperatives with landowners and lessees and everything about in the Eastern United States, you know, putting these these cooperatives of landowners together to work in concert with one another for collective, bar, you know, uh, beneficial management of whitetails or for turkeys. The hell we can't do the same damn thing with predator management. I understand that there's been limitations on block management in the past, but you can't tell me that we have wildlife managers that couldn't come to the table and help guide the public. In the past, whitetail management was suffering because we weren't having hunters out there shooting more, you know, waiting for mature deer. We had, in the past, we had whitetail suffering because we weren't shooting, shooting enough does. But what happened with careful considerate involvement with our wildlife professionals, working with deer enthusiasts, working with turkey enthusiasts. We changed the culture to where the the sportsmen now are implementing very 
scientifically, ecologically sound principles on the landscape. The Quality Deer Management Association in their efforts for deer have absolutely moved the needle in the positive direction for deer man- whitetail management, especially in the eastern and the southern part of the United States. Wild turkeys, you can see the same thing. Now, obviously wild turkeys are having their issues right now, but you can't tell me that we could not start a broad scale basis of how, if we value trapping as something, as a tool on the landscape that's valuable, you can't tell me that we don't have resource professionals that can help guide this in a better direction. No, maybe year two, three, four, five are not as successful as we want it to be. But maybe in five years, five through 10, we start to move the needle. And years 10 through 15, we get some things going. And then 20 years later, we've got something that's actually working on the landscape. And that's the other thing too, is don't, don't, te- I understand the senseless, needless, you know, quote unquote, you're wasting the animal. Okay, maybe. You're, you're taking the animal for, a, for an ecological purpose. Because right now, what are, what are fur prices worth? Don't, I'm not talking about coyotes, especially in South Dakota or Western big, heavy coyotes. You can make some money off of those. Bobcats, yes, you can make some money off those. We're not talking about that. We're talking about raccoons, skunks, and possums, and, and badgers. Okay? You can't hardly sell a raccoon pelt right now. So if you're going to encourage trapping during the quote-unquote fur season and there's almost no market for it, what really are you doing with the carcass? How many trappers really are putting up all of that fur? And quite honestly, how many trappers are not trapping because there is no, there's no purpose behind that, start, that type of trapping effort? Because again, in the winter and fall, you're there for fur right? And if there's no market for the fur, what the hell do you do with it? You can only put up so much fur and freeze or or store so much fur before you got so much fur you don't know what to do with and you just put a pause on your trapping. At least in this type of situation, you're still discarding the carcass. Yes, you are. Just like you did in your normal, normal trapping period, right? The only thing is, is you're not taking the pelt and doing something with a pelt. Well, number one, with a fur market right now, how many people are actually really doing anything with a pelt? Versus, at least with the Nest Predator program, can we at least put it in the direction where we're actually doing something beneficial for another wildlife species? Aren't we supposed to be out there looking at the ecology of the entire system? Again, South Dakota is putting $22 million worth of effort in sportsman dollars into, according to their statements, into habitat related items. Now we can argue whether or not we should be doing more of that. Okay, that's fine. But can we not at least have an honest discussion at some point in our lives of predator management? Like an actual real one? It seems like wildlife professionals are always scared shitless when it comes to talking about predator management and the limitations of predator management. Why? Because we, in the past, have traditionally always been beaten up by the non-consumptive user, the animal activist, and the anti-hunter or anti-trapper. Well, how about rather than putting our head in the sand or running away from the issue or letting a, a train wreck, if this is what you want to call it in South Dakota, continue to occur, how about we get proactive, put science on the ground in a beneficial way, and actually do something with it? Change the dynamic, change the paradigm, change, not for tomorrow, for 5, 10, 15 years from now. We did it with whitetail management. There's no reason why we can't do it with predators. 
I'm going to wrap it up, folks. I know that was stupidly long. I apologize. But the point being is a lot of times like this one, a lot of resource professionals immediately went emotional. This is bullshit. They, she, you know, the governor bypassed this and this and that. We shouldn't be doing that. And then the emotion of, well, we're just, this is, this is, you know, I, I'm the researcher. I know the research. The research, research says this and it's not successful. And so you get emotional, you get tart, you get wrapped in your own head, you react and you don't look at, we're getting, apparently the program is apparently, again, I'm taking what I, what I can research off of what, and I've looked at other stuff. Apparently we're moving the needle a little bit, even a little bit, getting more kids involved with trapping. We're moving the needle on the public perception that trapping is a beneficial process on the landscape, a management process on the landscape, a tool on the landscape. Th those are good things. So how about we just put our angst aside, grab what's good, and start interjecting it where we can and be a positive force on the landscape. So whether, again, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna wrap it up. Don't, we, we can't let ourselves get wrapped up in emotion. It's so freaking easy, man. I'm guilty of it. But I'm watching more and more these days. Not only sportsmen becoming more polarized against non-hunter, not, well, anti-hunters and animal activists, and quite honestly, even some non-hunters who I've heard comments about, I don't give a shit what they, yeah, you better, okay? But we're getting so much more polarized because we just don't want to listen. We just don't give a shit. We don't care about what you're, I don't, I hate you. You have a different value set, so you're a piece of shit. Shut the up and I, and I want to fight against you and any freaking idea you have, Okay. And that's not only happening between sportsmen and anti-hunters and animal activists. I'm seeing it more and more within the sportsman community and within the professional community as well. This is not a long-term successful strategy. I, it's, it's, you, we know it's not. Again, we can look back on, on the past on col collaboration, cooperation, and, and, and all the good things we've done in the past to, re, to recover Whitetails, turkeys, elk, all these other species on the landscape. Can we not use the same brain power to come together a little bit better? And it needs to happen from the sportsmen. It needs to happen from the sportsmen advocacy groups. It needs to happen from the conservation groups. It needs to happen from the wildlife professionals. All of the above. We have to stop just fire, aim, ready type of deal. We, we need to we, we need take a moment put your emotion aside think about the issue the underlying issue the, the bedrock of the core of the issue when you hear someone talk what are they say I don't care if you don't like anything of all, all the, the, the what are they truly say truly listen to them what is the intent of it and can we find common ground and can we use it to move in, our, in a direction that is better for us in the long term and at the very least increase credibility of our position can we use our empathy and, and non-emotional thinking to garner more respect and be the most reasonable person in the room to where those people that don't know us those people that don't value us look to us as the people that they want to listen to and again find us to be the most reasonable person in the room. All right, that was long enough. 
Thanks, everybody, if you're still with me. <laughs> if you're still with me, I appreciate every every second that you spent in this, and I hope uh, I hope you enjoyed it. By all means, as always, if you disagree, fire, let me know. Seriously, chime in, comment, let me know, whatever. It would be a good discussion. Um, and if you did like this, share it, send it out to wherever, you know, whoever else you want to, you think needs to hear it. Click the likes, click the follows, give me the five-star reviews if you would on the on the platforms where you hear this podcast. And, and again, if I can get these videos up and posted, uh, that'll greatly help. And as always, this is made possible right now by our, the Row Hunting Resources subscribers, those people that financially support it. And you guys are the ones, guys and gals are the ones that make this happen. So I appreciate it. And if you want more of it, please keep that going. Keep keep subscribing, keep uh, supporting, and uh, I'll do everything I can to keep this ball a rolling. All right. Thanks everybody.